On episode 28 of the podcast, we discuss the ongoing saga of the market, GameStop and Robinhood, give some important updates concerning impeachment and executive orders, and Rob presents his case for the legalization of cocaine and hookers. You're listening to the fastest growing moderate political podcast in the nation. This is Down the Middle, a political podcast. All right, guys. Welcome. It is episode 28. We're getting up there. Uh, it's we? it's impossible to keep count. If you didn't continue to number these for me, I would have lost count a while ago. It's true. And I think I, I mentioned this on like our second episode, but it's going to get to the point where we're like episode 555. It'll be like... Uh, obnoxious at a certain point it's like yeah. it's like when it's like how mcdonald's is still counting how many how many burgers yeah, they've when sold. are they gonna stop counting <laughs> it's that billion trillion trillion billion trillion it's like just it. put yeah just put up a sign that says mcdonald's we're doing, we're doing really well, well. <laughs> that's the best thanks jerry seinfeld all right so uh we just have a quick few things to housekeep on this week so uh honest abe's housekeeping hangout go when he growed up this tiny babe Folks all call him Honest Abe, Abraham, Abraham. All righty. So uh, what's going on with the ads, Jay? We want to advertise your company, your product, your ice cream store. We're offering you free ad space. What's better than free, Justin? Nothing is better than free. And especially in this tough time, we recognize that things are difficult during COVID and businesses, you know, may not have the budget to advertise. And so we wanted to create a space where send us a business. You can access our listener base. They're open to you. So send us emails to down the middle podcast usa at gmail.com or text us on our socials and we will get back to you uh and we can figure out uh you know a way to put your ad on the show so that's that's ongoing we want to help you don't look a gift horse in the mouth help us help you <laughs> exactly so uh next there has never been a better time to follow both justin and me on instagram we are firing on all cylinders and recreating political debate on the platform throughout the entire week, including on weekends, even occasionally. <laughs> That's true. So, That's true. <laughs> so the first thing you should do if you haven't done it already is go to Instagram and follow at down the middle podcast. We are doing a new thing where we comment on the news of the day and uh, we individually sign our names to any comments we leave mm -hmm. on the storyboard. So uh, that way you guys can tell which one of us is speaking. Subsequently, we've gotten into some Instagram storyboard debates, which we think is a pretty unique and entertaining way to keep these conversations going throughout the week. Uh, I don't think anything like this has been done before on Instagram. We are trendsetters, Justin. That's what we do. Yeah, come and join us and enjoy. All righty, kids. Uh, that's it. That's all we have for you today. We're not gonna. We're not. We're not gonna give you a product. We have a lot to get. We to, have a lot usual. to get to. There yeah, it is. So, there it is. I'm gonna yeah, start ringing a bell every single time you say that. Exactly. So there is one podcast segment in America, and it's likely, it, you know, probably actually in the world, that prides itself on addressing all of its listeners' questions. You've been there for this segment, and it will continue to be there for you because it cares deeply about what you have to say. This segment is called We Care A Lot. We care a lot. All 
All right, Justin. New Discord this week, didn't we get a yeah, new one? Yeah, you know, I thought I, I thought people had gone off the Discord, but I was wrong. We dusted got a new, off. Yeah, we, they dusted it off just for you, Rob, because thank you. We got a great comment from Pod Listener thirty five hundred, and it went like this. Long time silent listener here, guys. I'm a moderate who usually hates chiming in on politics. I'd rather just keep it all to myself. But after episode 27, I felt the need to jump on and congratulate Rob on this week's now last week's rants by Riz segment. I honestly think it was some of the best political analysis I've heard in the last decade or more. Why aren't mainstream press outlets doing more dives like this? And will the DTM media venture be mostly material like this? Thanks. Really enjoy every minute of the show. Keep it up. Wow. Wow. That is a glowing, glowing review of Rants by Riz. There you go. Well, first off, thank you, listener. Silent listener, I should say, for, yeah. for the compliment. It's very nice. Uh, we heard from several people who really enjoyed that rant from last week, so it struck a chord. Uh, one of those people was Editor-in-Chief Clay Cogman, uh, who will be editing the piece that I did for Rants last week, and mm-hmm. uh, he will be including that in the launch of our online media publication, The Intermediary, which we will talk about in a minute. So uh, the actual question from this listener is, why aren't mainstream press outlets doing more dives like that? Well, to be honest, I think part of it is laziness and a sort of desire to prop up stories that are going to get quick clicks. And, you know, deep dives containing lots of nuance don't get quick clicks, typically. Mm -hmm. So that's just the nature of the culture we're in. It's really not their fault. It's just, you know, it's internet culture. It's how it is. But there are exceptions, and I'll talk about some of those exceptions. There are plenty of publications and journalists doing fabulous work out there, so I don't want to paint with too broad a brush here. But since this question or remark from this listener was pertaining to media, and since I never like to miss an opportunity to expose just how terrible the media are at their jobs generally, I thought I'd make this into sort of a mini rant. So, Justin, give me my mini rant theme. All right, so Justin, myself, and uh, Justin's wife got into a rather heated debate last week, and it was on the heels of a New York Times piece that rubbed a lot of us on the left and a lot of us who have been critical of the media the wrong way. Uh, the op-ed was titled, Ease Up on the Executive Actions, Joe, and it was written by the editorial board at the New York Times, which to me is less and less impressive a credential as the years go by. Uh, in my opinion, and you guys are free to read the piece yourself and form your own opinions. I'm not trying to tell you how to feel here, but the entire thing was sort of written from the perspective of the aggrieved Trump supporter. Uh, besides the fact that it's silly to judge decisions that were made uh, in the very first week of a presidency. A presidency in which a new administration would be walking into several historic disasters. Uh, The piece is also filled with, in my opinion, out of context, poorly researched, bad faith, downright silly, both sidesism bull****. Well, tell us how you really feel, Rob. Okay. (laughs) Well, here's the problem, as I see it, okay? And again, I want to remind everyone that I'm speaking generally here, because there are several outliers out there that don't fit into the scenario that I'm about to paint here. So I'm talking here specifically about a general phenomenon that has occurred inside our media infrastructure. First, what is both sidesism? Well, 
It's again, the very general idea that both sides are equally at fault for our political divisiveness, and that both sides endorse abhorrent ideas, and that both sides latch on to false or misleading narratives, and that both sides engage in conspiratorial thinking. And the truth is, while there are certainly nutcases and bad actors on both sides of the aisle, there is one side that generally engages more in the aforementioned behavior uh, than the other. And this is just simply a fact. And you can visit any fact-checking site that you want, like PolitiFact or Snopes, and do your own research on this. And the right has taken to calling any news outlet that doesn't cover every one of their often baseless claims or theories, you know, left-wing, mainstream, or liberal. The outlets that do cover these often baseless claims or theories, starting at the bottom with Fox News and branching out into uh, the Washington Examiner and the Federalist and Breitbart and the Daily Wire and Infowars are called, uh, you know, right wing or conservative. And I again, I want to stop here and say I am not conflating Infowars with Fox News or even Daily Wire or Breitbart. I'm just saying that Infowars is included on right wing publication. You know, it, it is a right wing site, I guess you could say. So if you don't believe me, Ask Steve Bannon, former White House chief strategist for President Trump, media executive, and former executive chairman of Breitbart News, right? Uh, now, I know many on the right want to pretend like Bannon doesn't exist or that he isn't a Republican kingmaker, but the reality is that Trump doesn't win without Bannon's help in 2016, and Steve Bannon has had a profound and lasting influence on right-wing media and culture. There's just no doubt about that, because Steve Bannon figured out a secret to to help the GOP win, and unfortunately for him, on several occasions, he said the quiet part out loud. Uh, in an interview with uh, journalist Michael Lewis, Bannon said, quote, the Democrats don't matter. The real opposition is the media, and the way to deal with them is to flood the zone with So, what is Bannon talking about when he said, the Democrats don't matter and we need to flood the zone with Well, He knows, like any sentient human knows, that the Democrats suck at politics. They're just not good at it. Sorry, Nancy, nobody listens to you. Okay. The media, however, which historically would put time and research into their reporting, has been a roadblock for the GOP because very often the actual facts on the ground don't align with the narrative the GOP wishes to derive from those facts. So when Bannon says flood the zone with What he's talking about here is pumping out into the ecosystem as much spin, fantasy, conspiracy theories, and false narratives as you could get your hands on so that you can confuse the hell out of the common person living within the ecosystem and, more importantly, pressure the so-called mainstream media to have to cover many of those fantastical, conspiracy-laden false narratives that are hanging out in said ecosystem. When a media network decides to not cover those things because it goes against their journalistic standards, they are immediately labeled biased by the entire right-wing media infrastructure. Let's give just a quick example, okay? If you're a fan of of the right-wing press, you've probably heard the term Obamagate. Obamagate was, of course, the reaction to the Mueller investigation of Donald Trump and his campaign, sometimes known as Russiagate. Uh, These theories that surrounded Obamagate were unfounded and baseless and pushed the notion that President Barack Obama 
and his Justice Department were illegally spying on the Trump campaign in order to find dirt on him that would handicap or permanently impair his campaign. Uh, The Obamagate theory conveniently leaves out very important context as to what led to the FBI and the DOJ under Obama investigating certain members of the Trump campaign. Let's not forget that the Mueller investigation led to 199 criminal charges, 37 indictments or guilty pleas, and five prison sentences, Uncle Earl. Remember that. So not to mention the fact that before the 2016 election, there were exactly two presidential candidates that were under investigation by the FBI, and those two candidates were Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. However, we the people only knew about one of them, Hillary Clinton which likely led to her demise as a presidential candidate. And just how Democrat is that? You have all your ducks in a row, and you've put in countless man hours and conspiracies and dollars into your master plan, and then you forget to release the information to the public before the election. No wonder the Democrats lose so much. Clearly, it was a conspiracy. But needless to say, Fox News and all of the right-wing outlets that branch out from Fox covered Obamagate incessantly for the better part of a year, and some right-wing commentators like Dan Bongino are still talking about it to this day. When the so-called mainstream press, however, makes a conscious decision to not cover Obamagate due to its baselessness and lack of provable evidence, the entire conservative media infrastructure labels the press as hopelessly biased and a certified arm of the Democratic Party. This accusation is not just intended to influence the Republican base to pay less attention to the reporting of the so-called mainstream press, but it is also intended, as Steve Bannon always hoped it would be, to influence the press outlets themselves to develop their own sense of self-consciousness about their reporting. Are we being biased? Should we cover what Fox is so they leave us alone? Does our audience still care about objective journalism or do they want to hear the conspiracy theories too? That's kind of the thought process that goes on in a lot of these outlets. Now, like I said, not all news outlets have been guilty of falling prey to this kind of bullying and pressure. The Atlantic, for instance, is probably my favorite media outlet and the one I always recommend that people read the most. They have conservative journalists and liberal journalists who write op-eds about different ideas and opinions that exist within a myriad of political issues, but they do a pretty good job steering clear of stories that that they can't back up with evidence or that are based on pure conjecture or faulty or out-of-context narratives. That's what a media institution with integrity is supposed to do. On the other side of the coin, the New York Times, the so-called paper of record, while probably being accused of liberal bias more than any other paper in the world, has consistently fallen prey to the trick that Steve Bannon hoped they would fall prey to. The right-wing media and commentators flood the zone with A lot of it gets filtered out. The entire conservative infrastructure labels the filter itself biased. And this prompts some of these outlets to go back to the filter and loosen the mesh, netting just ever so slightly. Instead of a fine mesh sieve, it's now a medium mesh sieve. So it all ends up being a fruitless endeavor anyway when they print the supposed balanced piece of journalism that expounds on bad faith right wing narratives. And what do they get for their trouble? They get a conservative American. who still calls them hopelessly biased, and they get real journalism fans like myself who call them stupid. 
So they get nothing, yet they do it over and over and over again. As an added bonus, whenever a so-called mainstream publication prints a piece that falls in line with bad faith right-wing narratives, the entire right-wing jumps out of their seats and yells, this really must be true. I mean, if the New York Times is covering it, and on and on it goes. So to go back to what our listener question was, let's talk for a minute about how our online media publication, The Intermediary, is going to be different from many of these other media outlets. The Intermediary is going to be a publication that promotes and discusses ideas from across the political spectrum. However, every single piece we print is going to be fact-checked relentlessly and given the proper context. It is okay for us to have different opinions on economic theory or a wide range of social issues. Justin and I are living proof of that. But it is not okay for us to simply believe things that aren't true or push narratives that are purposely misleading or out of context to suit a particular political end. Put simply, trust is a two-way street, and you will be able to put your trust in the intermediary knowing that we don't have a particular agenda to push. And we will be able to put our trust in our readers to form their own opinions. It's as simple as that. Rant done. Fantastic. So my question is this. Why would the press you're talking about on the left even need to react or pay attention to the right-wing press? It's almost victimization, which is usually reserved for us on the right. Be a good journalist because you need to be a good journalist. Why does one have anything to do with the other? There's no real societal pressure, so is it because of industry pressure? And since when does or should that matter to anyone? It's definitely possible that this opinion you're discussing in the New York Times is actually carried by people, me included. Additionally, you and friend of the pod, Mark M. Cogman, have both said that a college-aged adult or even younger cannot be indoctrinated in 2021 because the internet exists. But here you presuppose that people on the right can't help but be indoctrinated by right-wing media enough so that the left-wing media is forced to react. Yet indoctrination doesn't exist. I'm not sure how both can be true here. With that being said, I'm very excited, as I know you are, to get going on the intermediary. But moving on from this, in terms of the popular Riz's rant from last week, I promised a rebuttal, so here we go. Okay. Let's first talk about where we agree. I obviously agree with you that COVID was bungled from an executive and administration perspective. I obviously agree with you that the right-wing media supported the conspiratorial claims and reports from the Trump administration downplaying the virus. And I obviously agree with you that the federal government, having been ordered by their commander-in-chief, shifted the handling of the virus off to the states in the name of federalism. The answer here, however, is not as clean-cut as I believe you've laid out. You would think by listening to this rant that the left-wing or mainstream media, as they are lovingly called, got it completely right, or at the very least that the right-wing media and base were completely unfounded in some of the concerns raised and voiced throughout the past year through the COVID crisis and a few other issues that have come up semi-recently. As an example, you stated in your rant that when the left yells climate change, the right yells forest mismanagement. And when you pushed in further, if you were paying attention, listener, you said, It works the same way with climate change. When wildfires ravage the state of California, which nearly every climate scientist in the world believes is an effect, at least in some, uh, to some extent, an effect of global warming. Do you know why you had to say it, at least to some extent? Because it's both. What you failed to mention is that the right was yelling forest mismanagement because the left was, at first, only crying climate change. And guess what? It's been confirmed. It's absolutely both. This is not a problem on the right. It's a bipartisan issue that can only be solved with, you guessed it, bipartisanship. This is just an example here, but in the issue of climate change, there's a limited amount one can do in the immediate to stop the effects of this. 
But forest mismanagement, well, we can do something about that right this second. It is absolutely within our control. And that does have to do with liberal governance, regulations, and state and federal forest mismanagement. So if we're going to out the right here, let's at least be honest about the left. They don't exactly have it right either. In terms of the draconian and harsh governmental measures imposed on the citizenry of blue states, I know for a fact that you and I both believe that it may not have been entirely necessary. Look at the differences between the numbers. On one hand, we have Florida, an open red state, and on the other, California, a closed lockdown blue state. By the way, it should be said that I don't feel it's necessary or proper to politicize these sorts of health policies, but that is the accusation here, and so that's why I mention it. These two states reported as recently as the end of last month, January, had exactly identical case rates, hospitalizations, and deaths. Florida had 5,043 COVID-19 cases and 91 deaths per 100,000 residents, while California had about 4,595 cases and 51 deaths per 100,000, showing a similar curve. My point in bringing this up is that this should give credence to the idea that we must and should question our leaders, and we should not feel bullied to refrain from doing so. When this crisis is all done and the dust has settled, we will probably look at Florida and California and say, Okay, well, the curve was the same. Now, how are the local and small businesses doing in each of these states? If that does indeed happen, I'm sure we will all wonder whether it was worth it or even necessary to lock down completely for this long. And even if this was an instant reaction, fine, you get to have that because this is scary. But could there have been a shift in policy during the crisis? The answer is yes. It's been a year, folks. There are absolutely other options that could have been explored. But because of political pressure, the left acted differently than the right and doubled down. It became political, and that is what we are litigating here. You claim the right called foul because the left locked down hard. And what I'm saying is that the right should absolutely have called foul. Heck, some of the left should have called foul. Additionally, yes, we should have had a federal policy for COVID, but we also absolutely do need to leave some of this stuff to the states. It's the same thought process as what I said about the Paris Agreement. Each state has different complexities, and a federal policy does not take that into effect when making decisions for the entire country. So did the right try to make sure the decisions all flowed to the states and therefore were held accountable when something went wrong? Yeah, some of that definitely happened, but not all of it was that. Is it a stretch to call it socialism? Yeah, it's a stretch to call it socialism, but it's not a stretch to call into question the responses by these governors or their motives. We should question both, always, especially when there's evidence that backs up the idea that there are other options to be explored. Which brings me to my next point. I don't need to continue to repeat how I feel about Trump or what he's done to our country and system. He's pushed us to the brink of destruction, and we are now picking up the pieces. I agree that we must reinstill confidence in our institutions, and we must take back the Republican Party and restore our country to a country of ideas and ideals. But what we cannot do is stop questioning our leaders and their motives. This takes us too far in the other direction. Questioning our leaders or institutions does not undermine our system or the process. It's quite the contrary. It's literally written into the fabric of our country. It's a privilege. So I'll say it again. It's time to get off the seesaw. Just because we had a man who has tried to remove our trust from our institutions and leaders does not mean we should now give it to both unceasingly. That is not the way. The way is moderation and a healthy amount of cynicism. I will also play Bill Maher's clip here, but for different reasons. And the reason is because I do think it is valid. 5,000 people is not 74 million people. And what you mentioned, Rob, the idea that 70% of registered Republicans think the election was rigged, while I am not one of the people that believes this, nor do I agree with the percentage that do, I will fight for the people that wish to voice their opinion so long as they do not act violently. It is their American right to do so. The same as I will fight for the ability for stupid Nazi Holocaust deniers to voice their opinion, because those rights on the flip side are mine as well. The right to fight back against these ideas with ideas that I know and believe to be true with evidence that I have at my disposal, that is the battle. The battle of ideas, ideas that are coupled with evidence and therein make a point that can win entire wars of ideas. 
I mourn these stats as you do, but I do not for a second think that these people should be silenced for merely thinking or speaking something that isn't true, because what happens after that is the danger zone. Finally, new rule as bad as last week was. Let's not confuse 5,000 people with 74 million. Even supporting the insurrection in spirit is, well, deplorable. But there's a difference between holding illiberal beliefs and acting violently on them. At least that's what they always told me about Islamic terrorism. I've preached and still do that you can hate Trump, but not all the people who like him. And as counterintuitive as it may seem, you can like something run by without being one yourself. So, Rob, our listeners, Republican Party, America, what we need to do is this. Arm ourselves with evidence and fight these battles of ideas until we have won. That is how you win our country and our party back. I understand the want and desire, even the need to draw an ideological line in the sand, considering what went on over the last four years. But through wars and strife and so much dissonance, that historically is not how our country has gotten on. It isn't so clean. We must muddle onwards through the muck, with or without a complete purging of Trumpism. Allowing that line in the sand to turn us bitter will only further worsen the divisiveness in our country and plunge us into further problems. We must not forget, but we must get back to the business of our country, or there simply will be no country to have business in. Very, very good, Jay. Good rebuttal. Now, I have to go back and, <laughs> listen, to and, do, and listen to that and give you another rebuttal. No, <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to do it. We're going to end that here. So yeah. give, me, give me a second here, because I'm going to go back and just... Again, that was long, so yeah. Yeah, I, I know the feeling of sort of wanting to, to detail long, everything. Yeah. To you know, right? I I know the feeling of wanting to go back and go through everything with a fine tooth comb. But a few things you said in your argument about the Republican sort of way, the the three step program that I mm-hmm. laid out of blaming of, of of taking the onus off the federal government. Yeah. I was really talking very generally about okay. just and and I think the 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 pandemic is uh, is an unprecedented situation, at least in modern history, because sure. there's never been this much pressure put on individual state governors. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. We we really found out. I, I said this to you yesterday uh, yeah. offline, obviously, but mm-hmm. you, it's a pressure cooker, and you really find out what your state and county and cities are made of, and right. what and how how greatly they can affect your lives. Right. But that doesn't. And I agree. And I absolutely agree that we need to look. I was talking about this with Clay the other night. We we are going to look at how every governor in the country handled this. There's yeah. going to be a ton of Monday morning quarterbacking because, oh, yeah. frankly, a lot of it is luck. A lot of it. We, we didn't know anything about the virus in the beginning. A lot of these decisions were knee jerk decisions based on population and density. Uh, and we should give so them that. Yeah. You know, we should give right, them that. Right. Right. So. So, yes, it might in five years, we, we might say, uh, you know, Gretchen Whitmore did the best job. Congratulations. Let's give her the prize. Yeah. Or Ron DeSantis did the best job, you know, and it'll be based on how their economies are and probably other external factors that aren't even being uh, included mm-hmm. in the analysis. Right. Yeah. So we can't tell you, but it, that does not take away the, the fact that Republicans have an added advantage. And this is what I was trying to say. Republicans have an added advantage in their their sort of ideology, it's built into their ideology that one, federalism is what the country is made of. That automatically takes the onus off the federal government. Trump was the least prepared president for a historic disaster than, sure. uh, than I think we've ever had in history, right? Absolutely. But, 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 but it is true but, that that's how this country is designed from the ground up. Of course up. it is. I, mean, I it love just, federalism. It, yeah, I'm yeah, a liberal happens who to be loves the federalism. The problem right. is it happens to be the case, right? 
Of it does happen yeah. to be the case, but that but we cannot let that mask the fact the responsibility the federal the, the responsibility agree. of the federal mm-hmm. government right yeah, and then in in terms of then blaming the states for uh you know uh, the thing i said about the global warming thing mm-hmm. i'm talking about again anytime one of these issues comes up where there is responsibility uh, put on the federal government and they drop the ball the 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 plan is always to blame the states we saw this with bush and katrina i didn't mention this in the rant but when katrina happens a lot of people were blaming the bush administration and the bush administration very quickly sprung into action and said well you know we have to put the we we have to put a, a spotlight on the state of louisiana and what they didn't do okay so there there is you cannot deny that there is sort of a convenient way of 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 passing the buck down to the states and say, well, they have to deal with this. But look, my only point was that uh, that happens, but we do need, there is a distinction and nuance. Some of that's true. Some of that isn't. And we should look into what is and what isn't because the things that need to be fixed still need to be fixed. Right. I I understand what you're saying. But then in regard to the second point, which is that the democratic states just happened and democratic cities happen to be more densely populated. They have they have issues that the state of Wyoming doesn't have. Okay. Like the <laughs> Los Angeles County has issues that very few st- counties in the country are going to have just by population density. So again, I think it becomes very convenient for Republicans to say, look at how those blue states have handled anything. And, and this isn't just with COVID. They do this with crime. Yeah, okay. Sure. Be, be, you know, you'll always hear about Chicago, it's blue state government. It's liberal governance that is leading to these to these problems of of uh, violence, mass violence in the streets of Chicago. When they're not taking into into account why those communities are structured that way, and that they don't have to do with the fact that they have a, a democratic governance. You know, it, it, it's used the the fact that these democratic governors control these states is used against them, and it becomes very convenient for for Republicans now. Moving on, the last thing I will say, I think the deepest disagreement you and I have is the last thing you talked about. Yeah, I'm there. sure it is. I just do not agree that we can let the whole Trump thing go and move on whether or not people are still Trumpy. Like, it just doesn't work like that. In my estimation, there are three kinds of Republicans right now. Number one is the Republicans like yourself who panned trump the entire time who held him accountable Mm -hmm. who knew how dangerous he was and talked about it endlessly before the pandemic absolutely knew from the from very first day you Mm -hmm. couldn't believe this was happening all right Right. there's Mm -hmm. plenty of those okay number two is the double downers the Mm -hmm. people who are like no trump was the best ever i'm (laughs) doubling down on trump right number three is the people who want to just let it go Mm -hmm. and say all right that was then let's move on now that's the one that annoys me the most okay because at least i have i can understand the number two like i can understand the double downers being like you know because it's very hard to let go of something that you're so attached to Mm -hmm. it's the third one that really upsets me because these people know better and i was warning about this from the very beginning if you go back to the beginning of the podcast i talked about how Trump was so bad for the Republican Party because he was destroying the brand. Yeah. And I I, I believe I said something along the lines of 
you know, a huge part of the conservative brand has been morality. Yeah. Once you invite Trump in and you give him full support, yeah, the, and you done. Tur- the argument is done. It's yeah, done for that. a really, really long time. For sure. You could talk about if we want to talk about uh, spending, for mm-hmm. instance, the Tea Party, their entire existence mm-hmm. was about too much government spending. Trump spent like a like a drunken sailor, okay? He spent more than spend any a lot of money? president. <laughs> yeah, he spent more than any president in American history. So now when you see Republicans on TV talking about, you know, doing the whole like, you know, think of the children, you know, yeah. we, we, we need to be concerned about the deficit. There is sort of a big middle finger to those people from people like me. It's like, where the hell were you? So I don't like this whole idea that you get to now redefine the parameters for how we can have an argument. There's a lot of people who are doing this. I have a high school friend, a dumb high school friend, who keeps posting things saying, "Do he'll, he'll put up a challenge and say, and do it without mentioning the name Trump. So the other day he, he, he wrote, tell me why these Biden uh, executive orders are good and don't mention the name Trump. It's like, no, you don't get to do that. Yeah. Yeah. You don't get to set the parameter. Oh, we can't talk about Trump anymore just because he's not president. That would be like, oh, tell tell me something, one thing good that Apple has done for society, but don't mention Steve Jobs. I don't go that far. You know, what I'm yes. what I'm really trying to say is like we know like we know what's gonna happen in, in the impeachment trial. You may not get what you're looking for oh, yeah. and if yeah. that happens and that's if a and when huge that happens, problem it is yeah. a huge problem i yeah. see it coming the same way mm-hmm. that we we just talked about we saw everything else coming and yeah. i am fearful of that holding up the business and future of this country and that is my worry we have to go about the business of the country 100 percent agree with you on that and yeah. we will go yeah. about the business of the country the problem is you cannot there has to be that reckoning to me this is where i disagree because if you're one of these people who are still doing the whole, you know, yes, the insurrection, I, I, I condemn it. I condemn Trump as a man, but mm-hmm. I did like some of the policies. At this point, everything that has happened, I'm sorry, it supersedes anything good that happened in the Trump administration. It just does. So I, I just can't take these people seriously who are still trying to convince me that Trump did some good things. There is no good things anymore because what ended up happening was so bad that it erased anything good that and it becomes in my mind silly to even talk about anything that you might have perceived as good so without that reckoning and without people saying we reject trumpism this was a bad thing it was a bad thing for the country we were wrong i just don't see the moving on because Trump, at the end of the day, and this is my final thing I will say, mm-hmm. at the end of the day, Donald Trump is the most popular Republican in the world. He is one of the most re- popular Republican presidents ever in history. In fact, he's one of the most popular in-party presidents in history. Barack Obama never had numbers like Trump has in the Democratic Party. Trump is an insanely popular thought leader if you want to call him that, I hate using the word thought in Trump in the same sentence, but he is an insanely popular leader in the party to this day. So the idea that we could just say, oh, but that doesn't exist and move on, it ain't going to happen in my book. No, and that's, that's not it, what I'm hoping for. My yeah. only point in mentioning it is that the reckoning that everyone's talking about may just, it just may not happen. And yeah. if it doesn't happen, you know, and, and the line is drawn in the sand, the, the work stops and the, our country can't take more stoppage of work right now.
Right. And I will say what Bill Maher says, where he says, you can't hate everyone who voted for Trump. I don't hate anyone, okay? I understand uh, why someone wouldn't have voted for Hillary Clinton. Sure. But I am not going to take people seriously politically. Yeah, it's a, di- a different they, conversation. Yeah, it's a different conversation. I will not take them seriously politically if they are still... Uh, you know, teetering on the Trump train. If they're sort of hanging off of it and they're like, oh yeah, I totally reject Trump, but they're going 100 miles an hour down the Trump train. No, thank you. And by the way, he is your 2024 nominee. So- um, Stop saying that. He is. I mean, he is. And we'll get to that later. Anyway, let's move on from this. Excellent job, Jay. Thank you. I, uh, I, I really uh, like the, this kind of political discourse because I yeah. do think it's important. I think I it's agree. important for people to hear. All right. So uh, we have got some news to cover as usual. There was some interesting non-COVID, non-Trump related news this week. And it feels good. It feels good. I feel good about it. So this is Turn On The News. Okay, uh, Justin, fill us in on any of the happenings this week, the highlights, if you will, uh, with Biden legislation and or executive orders. What's going on? Okay, so like it or not, President Biden has continued signing his slate of executive orders. Just yesterday, President Biden signed three more executive orders, reversing the immigration policies of former President Donald Trump. The first of three ended a 2018 zero-tolerance policy on prosecuting illegal border crossings. The second, an order to seek unification of parents with children detained at the border. The third, aligning with a number of EOs from last week, requests a comprehensive review of Trump-era immigration policies. The Supreme Court, just this morning, canceled courtroom arguments scheduled for the next few weeks over two aspects of former President Donald Trump's immigration policy. One of these issues is the use of Pentagon money to build the southern border wall, and the other making immigrants wait in Mexico instead of the U.S. This is all reflective of the Biden administration's reversal of both of these issues. Additionally, over five attorneys general joined together in sending a letter to President Biden this past Wednesday, warning the administration that their states are willing to pursue legal action if the federal government is seen to violate individual constitutional rights or exceeds the limits on its powers. The states involved so far are Mississippi, Alaska, Arkansas, Indiana, Montana, Texas, and West Virginia. In one more interesting instance of EO note, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service ignored a Biden EO to review the delisting of the gray wolf from protection under the Endangered Species Act, asserting in a three-paragraph letter that the delisting by the Trump administration was valid. So to all gray wolves listening to this show, you've been warned. <laughs> so uh, one of, if not the uh, biggest stories from last week is the craziness that happened with Reddit and GameStop stock. Uh, this is actually a really interesting non-political story that's sort of turned political that uh, calls into question the market, the purpose it serves, and uh, how easy uh, or how easily it can be manipulated. So uh, for some, it's even an excuse to question the idea of capitalism in and of itself. I mean, how how predictable, right? Yeah, exactly. So uh, <laughs> there was also some rare bipartisan viewpoints on this one, as well as unprecedented action uh, taken by private stock trading companies like Robinhood. Justin, why don't you detail for us from start to finish what happened exactly before we talk about it? Because I think some people, including myself, have a hard time sort of following the ins and outs of this one. Okay. Yeah, the markets have had quite a week. Look, I know you've been hearing about this absolutely everywhere, so in DTM fashion, we'll try to give you the quick facts and then explain the relevancy. A group of people on a Reddit forum called Wall Street Bets made a decision to buy up shares in a company called GameStop, a video game retailer 
on the brink of extinction due to the ability to download games straight from the consoles themselves. The pandemic didn't help things there either. Complicating the situation, GameStop was a stock that was heavily shorted. A short, if you haven't picked it up from all of the fancy memes and videos released this past week, is essentially a bet against a company doing well, or in other words, a bet that the company's stock price will fall. We all know the old adage, buy low, sell high, but that actually isn't true for a short. The basics go like this. So you pick your stock from the company you believe is going to stumble. While the stock price is still high, you borrow shares from your brokerage, and then you sell them at a high price. This, of course, leaves you still owing shares to your brokerage. So since you've bet on the company's downturn, you wait for the price of the stock to go down, and then you buy back the shares for less money, return them to your brokerage, and pocket the difference. Now, there's an instance where you could run into trouble here. As I stated, this is a gamble, because unless you're working with insider information, which is illegal, you do not know for sure that this company will actually take this downturn that you've now placed money on. So if the stock price goes up when you expected it to go down, you are in trouble. Now you have to buy back the borrowed shares at a higher price in order to return the shares to your brokerage, thus losing you money. Now that we have that out of the way, I can continue to tell you exactly what happened. So as GameStop's stock price continued to fall all the way down to $6 a share just four months ago, hedge funds, which are essentially pooled investment funds that deal in shorting and other Wall Street techniques to make great deals of money, began shorting GameStop in great volume, betting on its continued downturn. What they didn't know is that the fine people in this Reddit forum, Wall Street Bets, began encouraging each other to push shares higher. Wall Street Bets, when it was started in 2012, was just a place where amateur investors could talk about quick stock bets. But on this day, it became something else entirely. Once these amateur investors began to buy up GameStop stock, they drove the price of the stock all the way up to a high of $469, which was more than 130% in one day. Aiding in the ease of trading in 2021 are companies like Robinhood, which is an app or platform or portal which allows anyone to buy, sell, or trade stocks. It wasn't always that easy. So back to GameStop. With the price at this high, all those big New York hedge funds had to buy GameStop shares at this high price from the market in order to return them, and their buying drove the price even higher. This left the investors on Reddit with millions of dollars in GameStop stock and the hedge funds in the red, with one, Melvin Capital, having to borrow close to $3 billion to cover its GameStop short. Now called meme stocks, the Reddit forum has continued to attempt to run the same play, with stocks like AMC, BlackBerry, Nokia, Naked Brands, among a few others, triggering an SEC investigation and congressional hearings. Now, as this GameStop charade was taking place, Robinhood was obviously experiencing a massive uptick in users purchasing stock. While I myself am a Robinhood user, I was curious about what was going on and opened my app to explore these stocks. Upon doing so, I realized they had disappeared entirely from the app with no explanation. At 5.35 p.m. EST, I received an email from Robinhood that said the following, quote, It's been a tough day and we're grateful to you for being a Robinhood customer. In light of the extraordinary market conditions this week, we temporarily limited buying for certain securities this morning. Starting tomorrow, we plan to allow limited buys of these securities. We'll continue to monitor the situation and may make adjustments as needed. This was a temporary decision made to best continue serving you and was not an easy one to make. We know it's led to frustration and confusion and wanted to provide some clarity. As a brokerage firm, we have many financial requirements, including SEC net capital obligations and clearinghouse deposits. Some of these requirements fluctuate based on volatility in the markets and can be substantial in the current environment. These requirements exist to protect investors in the markets and we take our responsibilities to comply with them seriously, 
including through the measures we have taken today. To be clear, this decision was not made on the direction of any market maker we route to or other market participants. But it was too little too late. Robinhood were already being accused of protecting the hedge funds and companies by blocking the purchase of these stocks and getting butchered by both the right and the left for getting in the way of a literal free market. More on that later. It wasn't until days later that they started to message things in a different way. In an appearance on Clubhouse, the new voice chat app, along with Elon Musk, the co-CEO of Robinhood, Vlad Tenev, stated that the app, quote, had no choice in this case. We had to conform to our regulatory capital requirements. What this meant, as Tenev went on to explain, is that the Robinhood operations team received a request at 3.30 a.m. PST this past Thursday night from the NSCC, or National Securities Clearing Corporation. This is a clearinghouse that brokers utilize in allowing the trading of stocks. These clearinghouses require the brokerages to meet deposit requirements each day. These requirements shift due to the volatility in the market and number of trades in certain stocks. This particular morning, the NSCC asked for a security deposit of $3 billion to back up the high volume of trades that were being made on the Robinhood platform. Robinhood reached out to the NSCC and negotiated the number down to $1.4 billion, but Tenef stated that the company was still forced to take action to limit trades based on that negotiation. In order to meet the negotiated $1.4 billion, Robinhood had to quickly raise an additional $1 billion in emergency capital from existing investors. This event has left America reeling over the exposure to a large swath of people that did not even understand how markets function, and a very upset Elizabeth Warren, AOC, and Ted Cruz over the actions of Robinhood in locking out traders' access to the stocks in question on their, on their app. Now, I know you just did a double take when I mentioned Ted Cruz and AOC in the same sentence being aligned on the same issue. With more on this very odd blip in the simulation, my political savvy co-host has more. Rob? <laughs> well, before I get to that, let's discuss this just a little. And, and if this whole saga is a good or a bad thing, because my impression is that it's funny, like extremely funny that a group of kids basically were able to disrupt the market like this. But the reality is that it's probably not a good thing to happen, right? You know more about the market than I do. So you tell me. I mean, it's funny, but it's also scary. I mean, it's, it is a form of market manipulation, whether it's legal or illegal. What they were doing was driving the stock price up because they decided to drive a stock price up, not because right. of necessary the, the value of the company is where it, it stood at $469. Now, it, it's, it's widely been reported that GameStop was an undervalued stock. So right. there's some credence to the fact that it, it should have been worth more money, but certainly not $469. Right, right. Now, yeah, I heard some political commentators say, uh, you know, this is what happens when people think of the stock market as a casino, which it's not it not it isn't a casino. It's not intended to be a casino. You have any thoughts on that? I mean, sure, the intention isn't for it to be a, a, a casino, but right. in a lot of ways it is. I mean, what you're what you're essentially betting on, for lack of a better word, is a, a, a company's value or worth when you pick a mm -hmm. stock. Right. But because of hype and the internet, I mean, Tesla is a perfect example of this. And I love Tesla. Yeah. They're a right. diversified company. They do a lot of things. Mm -hmm. But there is, there is an, an amount of hype that is also associated with Tesla. And that right. drives the stock price up. I, Bitcoin is sort of the same thing to a degree, right? There's no value yeah. in Bitcoin. It's not a, a, a physical asset. But, yeah. you know, people thinking that there's value there because it's something interesting drives the value of this thing up. And then what is the actual valuation? Well, we don't know. It's inflated. Right. And so that is, you know, the interesting thing here. It's really shown us that a company's value can be greatly inflated by mm -hmm. a stock price and it doesn't right. necessarily reflect the value of the company. That can be a very dangerous thing. That's how bubbles are created. And that's yeah. how, you know, wealth can, can go away very quickly in this country.
Right. Now, you know, when I got the, uh, when I saw the story about Robin Hood, the first thing, like the first thing out of my mouth was like some free market we got here. Was that sort of along the lines that, you know, of what you were thinking as well? I think everyone thought that. They, you yeah. know, I think that they thought immediately, and because they took so long to respond, that mm-hmm. this, they were blocking trades because they were protecting these companies and these hedge funds. But, you know, it, their story is that it wasn't that. I mean, this is, you, you right. heard the narrative that, that they gave. Whether that's actually true or not, I don't think we'll know. Um, but yeah, I think that was the first thing that everyone thought is, is right. you know, they are blocking access to a free market. And that's why you saw so many politicians start speaking out about it. Right. Now, uh, as Justin had mentioned uh, when he was going through all this, one of the more interesting comical elements of this whole thing has been the rare agreement that's taking place between far-left Congresswoman, the Honorable Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, otherwise known as AOC D. Twitch, and... human turnip ted cruz uh who who is certainly one of the most far-right conservatives on economics for sure so why do these two share an opinion here now the new york times has a good piece uh about it entitled when ted cruz and aoc agree yes the politics of gamestop are confusing uh from the populist right to the socialist left the rush by both parties to side with young traders disrupting the market reflects the broad recognition of the impulses driving american in politics. Uh, I like how the article opens. It's it, it opens by saying the following. Uh, it's Occupy Wall Street, the sequel. It's Elements of the Tea Party, again. It's Bernie Bros and MAGA Maniacs. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's <laughs> right. exactly right. And uh, if you go all the way back to the beginning of the Down the Middle podcast series... We talked a good deal about the crossover appeal that existed between the Bernie bro left and the sort of Trumpian right. And we determined that both groups were sort of interested in, in the disintegration of the system to a certain extent. And I think that's why you have both groups sort of cheering this thing on a little mm-hmm. bit. But th- the interesting thing and the reason we shouldn't pretend that AOC and Ted Cruz are suddenly on the same page is this. OK, so so AOC tweeted out regarding the Robin Hood thing. This is unacceptable. We we now need to know more about Robinhood app's decision to block retail investors from purchasing stock while hedge funds are freely able to trade the stock as they see fit. As a member of the Financial Services Committee, I'd support a hearing if necessary. And Ted Cruz responded simply with, I agree. Now, to get to the bottom of what's happening with this strange agreement between AOC and Ted Cruz. Strange Cruz, new agreement. Strange new agreement, right? Cruz is a free market capitalist. So it does indeed make sense that he would have a problem with what Robin Hood did here. Mm-hmm. It makes a little less sense that AOC would have a problem with it since she's a self-avowed socialist. And I think... I think I figured out the answer here. I think what the answer is, is that she doesn't like the market at all. (laughs) If if, if it were up to her, there wouldn't even be be a market. market. Right. And nobody would be able to trade on it. So, you know, remember, AOC doesn't like money. She thinks money is evil. So she especially doesn't like that hedge funds make money or exist at all. And this whole situation kind of pit the hedge, hedge funds against the the little guy who she claims to be a champion of. Yeah. And for a second created sort of an illusion that AOC was on the same page with Cruz. The reality is Cruz doesn't like a private company blocking users from engaging in the market. And AOC doesn't like private companies or the market. <laughs> so, so it made us feel like there was a strange meeting in the middle happening when there really wasn't. Okay. That's great insight, Rob. Thank you. Uh, so 
Speaking of stocks, Speaker Nancy Pelosi took some heat this week over a purchase by her husband, Paul, of somewhere between half a million and a million dollars investment in Tesla. Now, it should go without saying that Speaker Pelosi has and will continue to play a prominent role in congressional negotiations and actions over clean energy policy. For example, if President Biden decided to move the entire federal fleet to electric vehicles, Tesla's stock would rise significantly. I'm not saying that there's foul play here necessarily, but I think it brings up an interesting conversation point. Should these lawmakers be restricted from investments like these when the laws they make could have a significant effect on the performance of these companies and their stock? Is there an ethics issue at play here? Rob, any quick thoughts on this? No, no quick thoughts at all. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think they should be allowed to trade these stocks or do you think they should be restricted in some way? I, you know, you know what? I'm gonna say I'm gonna come back to this one. I okay. want to research it a little bit more yeah, and put a, a little more one. time into it. But yeah. it is, it is a very interesting thing. It's not something I want to just blurt out an answer for. But I would say probably my weak. This is probably one of my weaker spots in terms mm-hmm. of this. These kind of ethical questions in the market. I'm just yeah. not sure about it. So I want to, I want to put a little more research in it. Yeah, I'll let's get back turn to, you next turn to week. our listeners as well. If you guys have an opinion yeah. on the subject, write us on Discord or on our socials. Let us know what you think. Shout exactly. out. Exactly. Right. So uh, moving on, I don't want to talk too much about this because we're giving you guys a relatively Trump-free episode here, although, you know, we did have to talk about Trump a little in the beginning. But we have to touch on one thing here, and that's the upcoming impeachment trials. Justin, tell us what you know as of today. So just yesterday, we had us a little pre-trial legal brief duel between House impeachment managers and the Trump legal team. The former charged yesterday that former President Donald Trump is, quote, singularly responsible for inciting the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol last month, while the latter fired back with an argument that the former president's speech was protected by the First Amendment and a Senate conviction would be unconstitutional. Trump's lawyers, Bruce Castor and David Schoen, argued in a 14-page response to the impeachment effort that the Senate cannot vote to impeach the former president since he no longer holds the office they seek to remove him from. The team wrote, quote, The constitutional provision requires that a person actually hold office to be impeached. Since the 45th president is no longer president, the clause shall be removed from office on impeachment for is impossible for the Senate to accomplish. Now, if you'll remember in episode 26 of the pod, we discussed some precedent of an impeachment process occurring after the individual has left office. In 1798, Tennessee Senator William Blount was impeached and tried after being expelled by the Senate. William Belknap, Secretary of War to Ulysses S. Grant, resigned in 1876 and was then impeached and tried for corruption. And federal judge West Hughes Humphreys left the federal bench in Tennessee to join the Confederacy as a judge without resigning his federal commission. In January 1862, House member John Bingham led led the committee that charged Humphreys with high crimes and misdemeanors. The Senate convicted Humphreys, finding him guilty on seven charges, and in a separate unanimous vote, disqualified him from holding federal office again. So, if I can find those examples with a Google search... I'm guessing the Trump team can find them easily enough as well. However, there are shades of gray here about the Senate trial, and constitutional scholars are actually split on whether or not there is constitutional precedent to proceed in this case. I guess we're about to find out. Mm. Additionally, Rob, we had mentioned we would follow up on whether or not a conviction was necessary in order for the Senate to restrict the former president from a future run for office. And I'm sorry to report that it does indeed first require a conviction before uh, restricting another run for presidency or any other high office, according to the constitutional translations I have read. Okay. Thank you for that information, Justin. I appreciate that. I appreciate the fact that we always come back when we say we're going to come back. You know, got to follow up on these. We're we're men of our word. Yeah, I would say in terms of the impeachment stuff, I was I was really looking 
at both articles, the, the art, the papers that the Democrats drew up yeah. and, and then the Trump the team letter. response, mm-hmm. um, and really at, sort of analyzing it with a, with a legal eye. And it, to me, it seems that, uh, Trump's defense is first amendment. You know, he could say what he want. He didn't, in, he didn't actually in, tell people to do that. Yeah, it's twofold. I, I think, it's that and the unconstitutionality of the trial itself. That's right, what going right, for. right, right. Um, but let's say the trial is deemed to be constitutional, right? Then I think his big thing is First Amendment. But, um, but the, I think the best argument that the Democrats have is actually the phone call that Trump made to Brad Raffensperger in, um, uh-huh. in Georgia, pressuring him to change votes. I mean, that, that was pretty severe. If that's not impeachable, I don't know what the hell is. I mean, remember, impeachment is a political thing. It's not a legal thing. It's not a criminal thing. So you could, a president could be impeached for anything. If a president can't be impeached for pressuring or bullying, which he did, the governor of a, of a, of a state to change or find votes that didn't exist, how is that not impeachable? I don't know. So um, we'll see. We'll see where it goes. But I think I think the Democrats are going to harp on that part. Yeah, that's that's a very big thing, and it's a reason that the insurrection happened. I think a big reason is the general idea that was pushed out and and uh, was included in that phone call that Trump made to the Georgia representatives that um, the election was stolen. Mm-hmm. It was rigged that there were, it was as simple as just finding votes that didn't exist. Yeah. Um, that is what led to the insurrectionists doing what they did. But, you know, I understand it. This is a legal challenge and we have to see how it plays out. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll definitely see how it plays out in the next couple of weeks. Now, moving right along to some international politics, we've put it into a new mini segment where we'll talk about the news as it relates to foreign policy. This segment is called, Four in policy. Four! First up, a great deal of unrest in Burma recently as an actual coup d'etat occurred with the military's overthrow of the country's civilian leadership. The military defended its seizure of power due to the government's failure to act on the military's unsubstantiated claims of voter fraud in November elections, which the party of the country's de facto leader, Nobel Peace Prize winner, on San Suu Kyi won in a landslide. A scary thought considering what just happened here in our own country, so keep that in mind, people, when you start hating on our republic or what Rob and I consider the great system we currently have in place, a system that overcame a similar scenario. Just a reminder. Okay, back to the international stage. This coup has perhaps given us a sneak peek into the foreign policy of the Biden administration as his pledge to promote democracy and human rights globally is now directly challenged by this crisis. China, which shares a border and is a major investor in Burma and is Burma's largest trading partner, has largely remained silent on the issue. The Biden administration has not, already blocking the little direct financial aid it offers the country's government, as most of the U.S. assistance goes directly to the people of Burma. President Biden has further options at his disposal, including target sanctions on military leaders, broad sanctions that could hit entire sectors, and or visa restrictions. We'll keep an eye on this for you and report back as we hear more. This, both Rob and I agree, is a very good step in the right direction for the Biden administration's foreign policy and maintaining our pledge as watchdog for the world. Good Biden. Very good Biden. In another possible sneak peek at the Biden administration's handling of foreign issues, the Biden State Department's Deputy Assistant Secretary for Israel Affairs, Haiti Ammer, spoke by phone with multiple Palestinian officials on Monday. This is the first contact a U.S. administration has had with, quote, Palestine in three years. 
This is further complicated by the fact that President Biden has yet to call Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu of Israel, breaking protocol with both the Trump administration and the Obama administration, as both had placed phone calls to the PM within the first week. According to Biden administration officials, the U.S. will resume aid to the Palestinians, reopen the Palestinian Liberation Organization, and oppose what some, but not this host, call annexation. I don't think I need to get too far into where I stand on this. I think you know. I would ask that you go back and listen to episode 12 of the podcast, an episode entitled Israeli Hot in Here, one of my favorite titles. We outline some of the truths and dispel some myths about this hotly contested region of the Middle East. I am massively disappointed with this Biden administration move, although I can't say I'm surprised. Biden is putting the safety of this entire region at risk and undoing some of the only great work the Trump administration did. He's throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Rob, any thoughts? I, I basically agree with you. This is this has been one of those issues that I did agree yeah. with the right generally when it comes to this uh, to, to the Middle East affairs. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I, I think you said it all. I got nothing more to add. I agree. Cool. I'm on the same page there. And we we told you no matter what side of the aisle uh, each of us are on, we will always hold whoever is in power accountable. That's right. Um, according to our personal ideologies. Mm-hmm. So, um. Anyway, next, uh, let's bring back another mini segment we gave you guys from last week. Let's make a deal with Chuck and Mitch. Dressed up the wing cars, cash, and amazing prices, and they come to the Tropicana Las Vegas. It's time for Let's Make a Deal. Actually, Chuck and Mitch weren't involved here so much. This is more of a tale of 10 Republican senators and our old president, Sleepy Joe Biden. A few days ago, 10 senators, led by Senator Susan Collins, penned a letter to the president asking him to heed his own call for unity and requesting the opportunity to work with him in a bipartisan manner to combat the COVID-19 virus and provide continued support to families struggling during the pandemic. They came to President Biden with an outline of a negotiated bill that could be approved with a typically required supermajority without the need for reconciliation. The offer came with a $618 billion price tag, off from the Democrats' proposed $1.9 trillion. President Biden met with the Republican senators on Monday evening. The big issues that the Republicans left out of their bill include an increased $15 an hour minimum wage and a great deal of state and local support. The reasoning behind this outlined in their letter that the states are still receiving support handed down from the last relief bill. The Republicans also left out the expanded ACA proposal as well. This is all on brand for both parties. But Jared Bernstein, one of Biden's top economic advisors, said Tuesday, while it was, quote, very good to see the bipartisan discussion between the president and the Republicans, the White House's goal is to get a large rescue package passed quickly. However, Senator Joe Manchin, one of the most centrist members of the Senate Democratic Caucus, and as we keep saying, a name we'll be hearing a great deal of in the coming months and years, warned his party on Tuesday against pursuing a Democratic-only coronavirus relief bill. He's quoted as saying, I have made it very clear. We're going to make this work in a bipartisan way. My friends on the other side are going to have input and we're going to do something that we agree on. I'm not just going to do it just down the lines of just saying party line vote. If it's out of the realm that makes sense and what we've worked on together, we've built too much trust up among each other to allow this to fall apart. So they can count on me to make sure that we do everything to make this bipartisan. Even with all that said, just today, the House voted to set the stage for the passage of this bill, voting 218 to 212, to approve a budget bill unlocking the special Senate rules allowing for reconciliation. This brings me to another segment within a segment. This is a mini Jay's ranterific ride. ride We've said it many times on this podcast. Our country works better with checks and balances when it is working towards the middle to create moderate change. By bypassing Congress utilizing reconciliation, checks and balances are not permitted to run their proper course. 
Biden has already been more aggressive than you've predicted, Rob. You've admitted so, at least in terms of the climate. Just because this legislation fits into the left's agenda, it doesn't mean that anyone should bend their ideals just to seize the moment. Believe me, if Republicans were in power and they were attempting to pass tax cuts unilaterally, I would rail at the process just the same as I am now if they were attempting to reach around Congress by EO or reconciliation. The Republicans came to the Dems with a fair negotiation on the COVID bill, along with the 10 Republican votes the Dems would need for passage. They should take some version of this deal. They should actually put action to the unity everyone except AOC is calling for, as these Republicans, Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, Mitt Romney, Tom Tillis, are working in good faith. If nothing else, you have to admit to that. You want to call for a purge of all things Trump? Fine. But this is not that. This is a supermajority being handed to you on a platter as part of a bipartisan negotiation. The way Congress, our country, is designed to work. If you don't like the terms, then negotiate them and come to a compromise that neither party is entirely happy with, but one where moderation prevails. The $15 minimum wage hike could cost the economy more jobs, especially in low-wage industries, which is where this is designed to, quote, help. And some states are actually already doing this with the $15, but they've been doing it in increments, which is how we're supposed to do it. Additionally, official forecasters are expectant of a good year for economic growth in the U.S. What this means is that we may not need such a massive government package. The markets are working. The economics of the economy are working. GDP is expected to grow 3.7% in the fourth quarter of 2021 and to expand another 2.4% in 2022. This would return GDP growth to its normal pre-pandemic level by mid-2021. The government will absolutely mess that all up by pumping too much assistance into the system and overcorrecting. The Democrats just can't help themselves in this bill. There are policy and legislative agenda items that don't directly correspond to COVID, and there's some common sense lacking in lieu of government spending. So here's my scorecard on the president so far. And yes, it's very early days, but it's essentially this. He is weak. Signing an EO doesn't make you a strong political leader. It just creates a unilateral power base of sorts. Commanding Congress, your caucus, and leading the country by bringing everyone along with you is what I would consider the work of a strong leader. The jury's out, but between the COVID bill, Schumer's latest comments, Israel, and where he's leaning on some of these EOs, it feels like there's some puppeteering going on. No, I'm not talking about the right-wing conspiracy where Joe Biden is ushering socialism into the White House. I'm just talking about a weak executive, easily manipulated and pressured by his party in Congress. I'm looking for him to do what's right for the country, not what's right for his party. I'm looking for him to do what he said he would do and bring our country together. You don't do that with partisan politics, but we'll see what happens. I'll leave space to be wrong here. Rant over. Okay, uh, we do have to move on, so I'm not going to spend a long time. Uh, needless to say, I disagree with some of that. So this is something I'm going to 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 come back to, yeah. give my opinion. Um, I will say that, again, two things that I've mentioned before. Number one, the president, Joe Biden, was going into an unprecedented situation where he had to do things that other presidents haven't had to do. Number two, when it comes to COVID relief, more is more to me at the moment. Number three, I read the same article you did about the prospect for GDP mm-hmm. growth and uh, you know the market imp- or um, the economy improving. I don't agree with that article. I I I personally I mean, it's read not just that one article. article. It's a number. Of I know. I know. Everything advisors. I've heard about this, I literally was shaking my head, thinking there's just no way. I, I just can't see how that happens. I still think we're headed for a Great Depression. I think that is. I know that is extremely cynical. Mm-hmm. I, I want to be positive about the country, but um, 
Again, that's why I support as much aid as possible right now because I think people are going to need it. As far as the $15 minimum wage thing, again, this has been a, this is like climate change. It is yeah, a yeah. signature position of Democrats. They Absolutely. have to do that. I have uh, my own theories on minimum wage entirely that mm-hmm. we will discuss on another show probably in a uh, in a topic of the day because I think yeah. the whole idea of minimum wage it could take up a topic of the day. Oh, completely. So I agree. My only point was mm-hmm. the the uh, the engineering of attaching it to a COVID relief bill. I understand that's a legislative point, but if you're going right. to pass COVID relief, pass COVID relief, leave your legislative agenda for yeah. the next set of bills and laws. Right. I especially would disagree with calling Biden at this point weak. It's too early to tell. Uh, I don't think he's been particularly weak. I think he's been in an unprecedented situation to have to correct what was left for him. But yeah. we will time, Maybe. Will, time tell, will tell. Exactly. And, we'll, and, and we'll get back to it. Right. Cool. So uh, next thing to talk about here, uh, if you've been uh, paying attention at all this week, you've probably heard the name Marjorie Taylor Greene once or twice. Uh, she is a freshman congresswoman from Georgia's 14th Congressional District. She is most famous for being an open QAnon supporter in her private life. QAnon, just to remind everyone, has uh, one of the largest cult followings of any fringe political movement. Uh, And they believe that the Democrats and big tech and I think even Wall Street, I mean, why not include everyone, right? While we're at it. it. uh, They are running a demonic child pedophile ring. And Trump supposedly was exposing this via subliminal messages in his tweets. Uh, And Q is an actual person. Q was apparently a a government insider who was dropping all this quote miss or all this quote information and uh, preparing the world for uh, what they call the storm, which is when authorities will finally descend onto Capitol Hill and put all the Democrats in handcuffs and take them off to jail. Now, one of the slogans of QAnon is trust the plan. So even after Biden took office, Q is still going relatively strong, urging supporters to trust the plan. So yeah, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who is one of the few people in the country that gets to call themselves a lawmaker, uh, expressed support for this group and has yet to denounce it. Uh, but it doesn't stop there. A couple weeks ago, some of her old social media posts turned up and confirmed that she is a fan of a ton of conspiracy theories, including anti-Semitic ones. Uh, so she believes in this theory that a Jewish space laser uh, was responsible for the wildfires in California. Can I ask you a quick question? Sure, go. How do you know a space laser is Jewish. <laughs> There's so many places I could go with that. Uh, but, but Leaving it yeah. very open for you. <laughs> yeah, leaving it open for me. Thanks for leaving yeah. so much open on this episode. Yeah, I'll come back to you on that one too. Oh, that's good. But uh, yeah, so she also believes that uh, on, you know, more of a... a evil level. She also believes that uh, not that anti-Semitism isn't evil. I mean, let, let's say it. Blame the Jews for everything. Like, sure, just, yeah. just blame Why them. Wildfires is Jewish yeah. space leaders, right? Um, but she also believes that both the tragedy that occurred at Sandy Hook Elementary School as well as the Parkland School shooting were false flags. This is sort of a new kind of conspiracy that are, has arisen in right-wing circles in the last decade or so. The idea of false flag. You know, the, the idea that none of these events actually happened. Everyone on TV is a crisis actor. You see, yeah, you yeah. Know, they're all actors, right? And 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 she why would they do what this? It's called she called it a red flag the other day. <laughs> yeah, she did. But why would they do this? You ask. Well, because the uh, the answer is obvious. They want to take away your Second Amendment rights so that the government can have complete and total control over you. And this very much appeals to a lot of people in the middle of the country who feel this way. I mean, the whole idea that they're going to take your guns. You know, this is very mm-hmm. popular stuff. On top of that, she's also 
liked several tweets in the past that promoted the execution of Nancy Pelosi. I mean, how do you, how do you go to work with someone like that? Imagine getting in the really elevator can. with Nancy Pelosi. <laughs> like, yeah, I'm going to kill you, Nancy. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, it's seriously awkward. So I'm presenting all of this in a rather tongue in cheek fashion because there is something funny and silly about it inherently. But the fact remains that this person is one of the few people in the country crafting laws. So what, it's what's dangerous. Vo- what's voted in to do so. My, she was voted in to do so absolutely and because we live in a time where distrust of institutions is so pervasive the rhetoric and attitude of someone like marjorie taylor green gets greenlit and almost lionized on the right pretty quickly and these kind of fringe theories become mainstream you know it, it becomes mainstream thought within years so we've seen this happen i mean there was a time when the majority of registered republicans literally the majority believed obama wasn't an american that he was born in kenya which is a complete conspiracy theory started by donald Trump, actually. So what's going on with her now is the question. You know, the Democrats are trying to get her removed from her committee assignments at at the very least. So something happened today, didn't it? What's going on? So essentially, uh, the government is getting ready to remove her from her committees. Uh, They've already warned her that her, you know, her stances on these issues is not above reproach and and that she should be held accountable for them. Even Mitch McConnell was quoted as saying, somebody who suggested that perhaps no airplane hit the Pentagon on 9-11, that horrifying school shootings were pre-staged, and that the Clintons crashed JFK Jr.'s airplane is not living in reality. This has nothing to do with the challenges facing American families or the robust debates on substance that can strengthen our party. Uh, I think it's pretty clear that, you, you know, by that quote, you know where Mitch McConnell stands on this issue. Um, and there are, there, there are specific ways in which she can be removed from the committee she currently sits on, and it looks like that's about to go down. Well, you know, yes and no. Mitch McConnell feels that way, but today apparently she gave a speech, and the, you know, the congressional Republicans are a lot crazier than the Senate ones, and uh, she got a standing ovation from them. And yep. here's the thing, you know, I'm going to come down on, the, on right wing for a second. Uh, I think it's indicative of where the Republican Party is right now, and this tells you everything you need to know, that they're... They're censor- censuring and demonizing Liz Cheney, right? who is a Republican institutionalist and about as conservative as one can get. Mm-hmm. And they're doing this because she voted for impeachment and denounced Trump, while at the same time they're making excuses generally for Marjorie Taylor Greene. Yeah. Uh, Kevin McCarthy was saying he, he doesn't really know. He's just sort of like sloughing it off. It really shows you just how far this party has fallen and how they have been overtaken by these loon bag conspiracy theories that have kept people voting for them. This kind of thing really, really appeals to the base. And it's sad. And nobody wants to put an end to it because they're scared. They're scared to put an end to it because it's good for them. Honestly, people will vote for... There is this pervasive notion in this country that everything is corrupt, that everything is evil, and these the internet has just, it's been like a snowball for these kind of things. And I'm not saying there aren't left-wing conspiracies that exist as well, but we have to admit they are a lot worse on the right, a lot more it's widespread. Not even, I was going to say not even a matter of worse, it's more, right. it's more that they are mainstream. They're mainstream. The exactly. And and that brings me to one more thing I want to say about this, which is I've heard some commentators saying, well, you know, crazies exist on all sides. I mean, you have two, uh, you know, 
out and out uh, anti Semites mm-hmm. in the Democratic yep. caucus and Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib. Yep. Absolutely. I was the first one on this podcast yes. even to say those people need to be condemned. We need to condemn all the crazies. And I thought the stupidest thing Nancy Pelosi has ever done in her career was posing up here on on the rolling stone cover with them yeah but you know someone was uh, i think it was ben shapiro was complaining about how the media takes marjorie taylor green and presents her as the uh, you know the 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 figurehead of the republican party and i was sort of like thinking when he said that well welcome to the club because the media does the same thing with aoc and rashida Tlaib. the loudest microphone the loudest voice Mm -hmm. gets the biggest promotion Mm -hmm. that's just the way it is and the stupidest voice typically um the difference is like you just mentioned justin i we know there's a very small contingent of people on the left who are anti-semitic or who who believe in 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 the values that are that are, are promoted by so those people hope. so we hope and and i'm i'm 99.9 percent sure of that statement mm-hmm. that i could say that accurately on the right it is the majority that has been picking up the slowly sort of developing these conspiracies and latching onto them and so i do believe that is a lot scarier it is more people in congress that are actually in congress on the right so uh, and even we have if they to be don't believe in them they're certainly promoting them right now by by the standing ovation and, and lifting yeah. her up on the platform of course but let's end on a good note here for 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 the last thing in this segment, now that we've talked about the craziness happening on the right, there are glimmers of hope. And one of those glimmers is Congressman Adam Kinzinger of Illinois, mm-hmm. uh, his, the 16th district, congressional district. Uh, now, Kinzinger has been probably my favorite congressman uh, throughout Trump's term on the Republican side. Uh, he was never scared to call it the president. Uh, if the GOP were smart, they'd uh, start pushing this guy to the very front of the party. He is a classic conservative with traditionally conservative viewpoints he's Mm -hmm. a veteran which is always a great thing in politics in general but especially on the right and uh, as an added bonus he's good looking and while some people may not think that means anything of course it does it means something in any field where it requires one to be on television and in the public eye yeah yeah now more than ever i would say now absolutely he's he is a good looking charismatic badass kind of guy and he was a fighter pilot i mean he's he, he's a perfect guy to lead a party like this who's trying to reclaim some of their uh, integrity, mm-hmm. I would think. you know. Um, so in recent weeks, weeks, he launched a new initiative, a new movement, if you will, called Country First. And I know my buddy Justin is very excited about it. So Justin, tell us why this makes you happy. I mean, it makes me happy. Every, every statement he, he wrote here, uh, I, I agree with. I mean, you know, yeah. the call to classic conservative politics and the way that the Republican Party was are all things i've been calling for and had hoped that we would be returning to um we need leaders like this to stand up we need them to make these kinds of statements we need them to lead and be the first one to raise their hands and say this is what i believe in this is the america that was promised to me and this is where i think we could go and who we could be and he's doing all of those things and he's making quite a bold statement um obviously it's garnered him a great deal of press so it's been nice to see him on all these shows talking about his video and his website and the movement. And I really hope to see uh, more Congress people rallying around him and more public rallying around him in the days to come. Excellent. Go research that. Finally today, we have a really interesting topic of the day, and we invited our editor-in-chief, Clay Cogman, on the show to help us out a little. This is the topic of the day. It's the topic of the day. Topic of the day. 
Okay, uh, we named this particular episode How to Create a Crime Syndicate because the topic of the day today is a libertarian concept that generally makes the claim uh, that sometimes laws that are enacted with the intent of curbing certain behaviors don't just make the problem worse, but sometimes even create a criminal enterprise that wasn't there before the law was enacted. Uh, but before we get there, uh, first I want to introduce the concept, uh, I want to introduce a concept to this discussion and that is the idea of societal externalities. Uh, you may have heard me mention this term on the show before, but I think it would be uh, useful to detail the concept a little bit more uh, because a lot of libertarian thought is based around whether a particular behavior creates externalities to the community writ large. So uh, a good example of this is smoking uh, smoking cigarettes, for instance. Uh, we've, we've talked about how the city of Santa Monica in Los Angeles is one of the most highly regulated cities in the country. Uh, tons and tons of laws. We had uh, Santa Monica Pete on a bunch of months ago uh, to talk about that. It's arguably the hardest city anywhere to be a smoker in America. Uh, in Santa Monica, you cannot smoke uh, within 20 feet of entryways and windows of any building uh, open to the public. Uh, in any outdoor dining areas, of course, any local beach, the entire beach of Santa Monica, you cannot smoke on or near uh, any park. Uh, the farmer's markets, which there are a lot of in Santa Monica, you can't smoke on Santa Monica Pier, which is a main sort of area in Santa Monica. You cannot smoke on the Third Street Promenade, which is is the main shopping area of Santa Monica. Uh, any library, public libraries, of course, uh, including the grounds. You can't smoke in any bus stop or within 50 feet of a bus stop, uh, ATM lines, or any other service areas, or even in any residential common area. So basically... You have to have your own freestanding home in order to smoke legally in Santa Monica. Now, as someone like myself, who is often critical of heavy-handed government legislation, uh, I think this is a good law. I think all cities should implement this, and that is because smoking creates clear externalities to the community. Uh, secondhand smoke is a serious thing. We know this. We know it you know, from the medical community that it can make people really sick over time, so uh, I don't think it's appropriate that you should be able to sit in a public area and infect people with your secondhand smoke, right? It can be potentially damaging to their health. Likewise, uh, I have been a strong supporter of mandatory vaccinations for children because this is a perfect example of externalities. If your kid is unvaccinated and I don't know that and our kids are playing at a park together, there are potential externalities associated with that. We've talked about this a little, but I feel similarly about mask mandates during a pandemic, of course. Masks clearly provide protection against a virus. And therefore, if you're in a public space and you're not wearing a mask, you're creating externalities for the people around you. Now, some people might be confused here because they might be thinking, but I thought libertarians were against masks. And this is precisely why there are libertarian concepts that I agree with, but I am not a libertarian because I find flaws in some of their arguments. They make a big deal about one's constitutional right to not wear a mask for instance, their basic freedoms, but I'm always confused as to why that freedom supersedes my freedom to not die, to give an example. Uh, that sort of cliche libertarian example that people always throw out when you mention the word libertarian is that they don't like seatbelts, right, or driver's licenses. But to take the seatbelt example, frankly, I'm kind of on board with the seatbelt thing, because not wearing a seatbelt 
doesn't really create any externalities to the community, right? You're only hurting yourself. But then again, I guess one could make the case that it increases one's chance of ending up at a hospital. And in, in, in a pandemic, for instance, when hospital space is very low, perhaps not wearing a seatbelt does create negative externalities to the community. But Where I'm really interested in taking this conversation is in regard to drug use and whether or not laws surrounding drug use have been beneficial to society or whether they're actually made, whether they've actually made the problem worse and in the process created additional problems. Uh, So I I am going to make the case for the decriminalization of drugs, which several countries like Portugal have already done and some states in America like Washington are in the process of doing with certain drugs. Um, But first, I think it'll be beneficial for us to go over the difference between decriminalization and legalization uh, because they may sound like similar concepts, but there are distinctions for sure. So we have a lawyer with us here today, as we mentioned, Clay Cogman, editor-in-chief. He is here and he will help uh, explain to us uh, as concisely as he can what the difference is between decriminalization and legalization. So yeah, we'll talk about legalization, decriminalization here a bit. I want to say up front just for a moment, you know, it's interesting me being on this podcast with you all because I'm usually brought on here to talk with you guys because I'm a a firebrand who's going to take some strong position on an issue. And and this one, actually, Rob and I have determined that we we kind of agree quite a bit on some things here. Um, But I really think that my position here is I just want to pour some cold water on some of the momentum that the... Uh, decriminalization and in some cases even legalization uh, you know movements are getting um the war on drugs has not been money well spent and of course has had terrible racial inequalities that go with it i think it's pretty hard to argue anything else uh decriminalization makes a lot of sense to me in this regard uh but i i think that proponents of decriminalization and we'll talk about portugal in one vein we'll talk about oregon not washington in another vein um but i think that they don't account for the whole picture their analysis is incomplete and i think that could lead to some pretty bad outcomes with this new experiment that we're trying even while i applaud the idea and support the idea of moving on from the war on drugs right but before we even get to that what is the just give us the basics of what decriminalization is versus legalization because if something's decriminalized isn't it basically legal no okay not at all uh and so it's, it's, it's a really, it's a really important uh <laughs> it's a really important distinction for this discussion um so when you're talking about legalization of something, that's something without restrictions, maybe beyond time, place, and manner. Milk is legal. Um, whiskey is legal, but with some restrictions. Um, if you were to legalize marijuana, as has been done in the state of California, that means that you cannot suffer any criminal penalty for its manufacture, for growing it, for selling it. For using it, for distributing it, it's a legal product. It's uh, it's the same as milk or bread. Um, probably a little heavier regulations on marijuana than on milk or bread, but everything is re- re- regulated to some degree. Um, contrast that to decriminalization. Decriminalization generally just means the removal of criminal penalties, but not necessarily civil penalties. And in most, or maybe even all, decriminalization regimes that I'm aware of, the de- decriminalization only goes to low-level offenses, such as possession of a small supply. So, for example, in Portugal, um, no drug has changed legal status in Portugal as a result of what they did back in 2001. 
all they did was take all drugs without just differentiating between any of them and say it's actually it's, it's a very it's a strange law the way it's worded i don't really know how it's played out in, in courts and things but um in portugal you don't suffer any criminal penalty if you are caught with a less than 10 days supply of any particular drug right if you so there still like, is re- regulations surrounding it well, heavy regulations and also criminal penalties. Because, for right, example, okay. in Portugal, if I am caught with a month's supply of heroin, I can go to jail. If I am caught as the owner of a manufacturing facility of heroin, I can go to jail. If I'm caught selling heroin, I can go to jail. And this even goes down to, like, it's illegal, for example, to possess marijuana seeds in Portugal. Because you're not smoking seeds. Those are for growing. Growing it is illegal. It is an illegal substance. It's just that we've decided if you're caught with a certain amount, just possession indicating use, not indicating intent to distribute... It just is a uh, is a civil penalty, and there's some other stuff that we'll, we'll get into more in more detail later in this discussion. Um, but that's the basic premise. So when you talk about legalization, you're talking about you could be walking down Santa Monica Boulevard, and in between the CVS and the Fat Burger, there's a cocaine store. Right, right. And right. at the cocaine store, you can go in and you can buy cocaine. But you can grow cocaine, you can import cocaine, you can distribute cocaine, you can manufacture cocaine, you can sell cocaine, you can use cocaine. That's a legal substance. That's not what we've got. Um, for anything but marijuana currently in the state of California. Right, and in Portugal, it still has to come to the market illegally in some way. It's just that the individual who has possession of it, as long as it's under a certain amount, is not criminally tried for that possession. Yeah, I'd I'd phrase it slightly differently. I'd say that it comes to the market illegally, period. It's a crime. Right, okay. There's not a legal way to bring it to the market. There is a legal legal way. It's It's an illegal drug. Okay, right. And... We so just decided I, I would guess that it's in that still, one scenario, you're not, you don't have to go to jail for it. Right. I would guess it still then does involve cartels and all sorts of illicit uh, and dangerous methods to, in order to bring the drugs to market, since it's not, there isn't a legal remedy for it. I would presume so. Um, okay. And that goes to my thoughts on some of the distinction between criminalization and legalization and how we might implement it here. Uh, right. Okay. As, well, as I bef- assume we'll get to. Yeah. Before you know? we get there, I think I want to lay a little foundation. So, uh, you know, before we really dive into decriminalize, decriminalizing drugs and the abject failure that the war on drugs has been in America, I think now would be a good time for my good buddy, Justin, to bring us back to another time in history when the government attempted to regulate our behavior via law and the results kind of sort of backfired. Uh, yes. Justin is going to bring us back to the glorious era of prohibition. Justin, get busy with the buzzy. It's the 1920s, the roaring 20s, if you will. You've just gotten off of work, and you're looking forward to some relaxation, some R&R, some me time. You meet your friends at a bar for happy hour, order a drink, reach for that cocktail, only to be grabbed by an undercover policeman who works for the IRS. You're handcuffed and dragged off to jail because you, sir, are breaking the law. Welcome to Buzzed History, Prohibition. The calls for prohibition began in the 1820s and 30s when a wave of religious revivalism swept the United States, leading to increased calls for national temperance. This movement grew and in 1838 saw Massachusetts pass a temperance law banning the sale of spirits in less than 15-gallon quantities, and although the law was repealed two years later, Maine followed suit in 1846, passing prohibition laws followed by even stricter laws in 1851. A number of states followed Maine. 
This movement grew through the Civil War, urged on by a trend that would continue on to today. Veterans would return home from war and become addicted to alcohol. By 1900, temperance societies began popping up all over the country as alcohol became the scapegoat for the destruction of marriages and families and instances of crime and cirrhosis plagued the population due to per capita alcohol consumption increasing by nearly a third from 1900 to 1913. A perfect storm began to brew led by the Anti-Saloon League, Evangelical Protestantism, and factory owners who sought to prevent accidents and increase the efficiency of their workers in an era of increased industrial production and extended working hours. In 1917, after the U.S. had entered World War I, President Woodrow Wilson tested a temporary wartime prohibition, claiming the need to save grain for food production. That very same year, Congress submitted the 18th Amendment, which banned the manufacture, transportation, and sale of intoxicating liquors for state ratification. Congress had worked in a seven-year time limit for the ratification process, but it was unnecessary. The amendment received three-quarters support of the states in 11 months. The amendment was ratified on January 16, 1919, as the 18th Amendment and went into effect one year later, but not before 33 states enacted their own prohibition legislation. In October of 1919, Congress provided guidelines for the federal enforcement of the new amendment commonly called the Volstead Act as it was pushed forward by the then chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, Representative Andrew Volstead of Minnesota. Enforcement of the amendment was first actually assigned to the IRS and then transferred to the Justice Department and newly formed Bureau of Prohibition. Throughout the 1920s, both the federal and local government found prohibition incredibly hard to enforce, and naturally it was enforced more vehemently in rural areas and small towns than in urban areas. Immediately and nationally, there was a decline in arrests for drunkenness and a 30% drop in alcohol consumption. Though the illegal manufacturing and sale of liquor continued, along with the ever-celebrated speakeasies. The Prohibition era also brought with it the rise of criminal gang activity associated with bootlegging. The most obvious example being Al Capone in Chicago, who took home $60 million annually from speakeasies and bootlegging. This brought about violence one would often associate with gangs of this nature, culminating in the St. Valentine's Day Massacre in 1929 in Chicago. Towards the end of the 1920s, support for prohibition waned, and by 1932, the country was sunken into the Great Depression. FDR ran for president that year on a platform including the repeal of prohibition. Ultimately, one over-incumbent Herbert Hoover, and in February of 1933, Congress adopted a resolution proposing a 21st Amendment to the Constitution that repealed the 18th. In December of that year, Utah provided the 36th vote needed for ratification, and by 1966, all states had abandoned the ban. Now, as you may have picked up, prohibition has widely been considered a failed experiment. However, there is data that has been released over the past 10 to 20 years that considers the opposite analysis. David Courtright, a drug historian at the University of North Florida, is quoted as saying in relation to whether prohibition led to more drinking, quote, no well-informed historian has believed that for 50 years. His book, The Age of Addiction, cites the following stats. Per capita consumption initially fell to 30% of pre-prohibition levels before gradually increasing to 60 or 70% by 1933. In Manhattan, the number of patients treated in Bellevue Hospital's alcohol wards dropped from 15K per year to under 6,000 in 1924. Nationally, cirrhosis deaths fell by more than one-third between 1916 and 1929. In Detroit, arrests for drunkenness declined 90% during Prohibition's first year. Domestic violence complaints fell by half, which one could argue offset the rise in organized crime. A 2003 study from economics Angela Dills and Jeffrey Miron, who is a libertarian critical of prohibiting alcohol and other drugs, found that national prohibition reduced liver cirrhosis deaths by 10-20%, to 20%, echoing Courtright's analysis. Emily Owens, an economist at the University of California, Irvine, 
analyzed the effects of national prohibition and state-level prohibitions in studies published in 2011 and 2014. She found that prohibitions were associated with lower murder rates, as much as 29% lower in some cases. Where crime did increase, it wasn't always prohibition, but other factors, like the swift urbanization that was occurring in there, that were mostly to blame. She is quoted as saying, quote, Once you control for other factors, fluctuations in homicide during the 1920s appear to be more closely connected to these non-prohibition changes. So, was prohibition a great disaster or a moderate success? It's something to consider. Currently, there are 88,000 deaths linked to alcohol each year. This is more than drug overdose deaths, car crash deaths, or deaths from gun violence. So what is the answer? Did we overcorrect after prohibition? I bet you one U.S. dollar we're about to discuss that right now. This has been another Legal Buzzed History. Buzz History. You know, that was a great Buzz History, Justin. Hey, Rob, and, uh, Rob can I yeah. just say that I, I think that was the best one. I yeah. think that was my favorite Buzz History. <laughs> uh, no, but the thing I was most surprised about, though, is... Um, I was under the impression that most historians did think that it was completely not useful in any way. Now, obviously, drinking is bad for your health. You know, <laughs> we we can all agree. So, so I'm Why not surprised. Why didn't anyone tell me? Yeah, right. So, I'm I'm not surprised at all at the health benefit some of the stats, one would yeah. see from you know, from some of the stats. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I am surprised that uh, you would see any reduction in. Um, in actual drinking rates, not in crime. I mean, yeah, obviously crime would go down. Drinking leads to a lot of crime. So uh, let's talk a little about the uh, the war on drugs. Now, Richard Nixon was the first president to call for a war on drugs in 1971, but the presidency of Ronald Reagan uh, saw an expansion in the federal focus on preventing drug abuse. Uh, those of us who who grew up in the 80s may remember the commercials, This Is Your Brain, This Is Your Brain on Drugs. Any questions? Remember with the egg? You know, it was, the, yeah, it was the like bacon, an egg, and, the and then they, yeah, and the bacon. I do, and they, I do remember they, that. They yeah. threw it in the pan. This is your brain on drugs. Any questions? Right? They they discontinued those commercials, of course. And the truth is that uh, hard drugs are really bad for you, but uh, that doesn't mean that the war on drugs hasn't been one of the greatest governmental failures in American history. So this is according to AmericanProgress.org. Um, every 25 seconds, someone in America is arrested for drug possession, uh, which is triple the amount that were arrested in 1980. Uh, one fifth of the incarcerated population in America is serving time for a drug charge. One fifth. So one out of every five people are serving time for a drug charge. 1.15 million people are on parole for drug charges. Uh, incarcerating people for drug related offenses has, uh, has been shown to have little impact on substance misuse rates. Uh, so in other words, people get out of jail and go right back to using, and, and of course, uh, putting people in jail costs the taxpayer a lot of hell of a lot of money every year. Uh, and the most interesting fact to me is that incarceration has a negligible effect on public safety. And the reason that particular stat is so important is because research has shown that very few drug addicts become violent. There are certain drugs that make people prone to violence, and we'll talk about those in a minute. But by and large, people who do drugs want to do them in the privacy of their own home or underground lair somewhere and just want to be left alone. So this is an example of where the externalities for society are created in the illegal drug trade itself. In other words, the illegal drug trade is more dangerous for the community than the drug user itself. 
putting drug users in jail doesn't have an effect on public safety, or at least it's very negligible. So let's discuss that for a minute and go from there. So I, I think that the your analysis is it's a little bit incomplete in terms of the externalities okay. and in terms of um, the types of externalities. But as an initial matter, the American Progress Institute or Center for American Progress, whatever they're called, so the research they cite shows that incarceration itself has a negligible effect on public safety across all crimes. Okay. That's not particularized to drug use. Um, and while I think that the body, the the, um, the bulk of the research, I agree, does show that you're not talking about significant violent crimes as a result of, of drug-related uh, offenses, it's not zero, but... More importantly, I think that there are more externalities to consider than that that I think are really the bulk of the discussion here. Right. Well, well, let me let me let me cut in for a second, because I think, you know, one of the things I wanted to touch on after Justin's buzz history that sort of got away from me for a second is the idea that um, the mob really took over the distribution of of. Uh, just, uh, of alcohol, right? We could all agree on that, right? I mean, that's really yes. was sort of the invention of the mob. Yeah, gave birth um, to the mob, yeah. right? Exactly. So, um, the point, uh, a point I would make is that cartel, drug cartels, for existence, um, and the the criminal element that has to exist in order for the drug trade to exist is something that only exists because of the illegality of the behavior we're talking about. So. The reason we have, in other words, the the dangerous part about doing drugs is the fact that you have to cop for drugs on weird alleys and underground back passages, and you have to deal with sketchy people and criminal people. And if you didn't have to do that, if drugs weren't, I, I guess you could say illegal, maybe if they were decriminalized, there would be less of that criminal element and therefore less crime that derives from that criminal element. Does that make sense? I per- Perhaps. I mean, I understand where the logic, where the logic appears there. But okay. I think what you're really doing is just creating a legal space for the cartel to uh, engage in work in. I mean, you know, I've I've seen we've had access to see the marijuana industry being in California. We have some friends in it and they're excluded from what I'm about to say. There are still a great number of very sketchy, very uh scary people involved in in marijuana even though mm-hmm. it's legal. And right. you know, especially because it's a cash business for the most part right now, there's uh an Entirely. incredible um, uh, an um, <laughs> incredible amount of of crime involved in in marijuana still. But that seems to me to be the the fault of 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 uh, you know, bad legislation. But here's here's the issue though, Rob. And and it's a couple of things. Um yes, to a certain degree, cartel behavior is created by illegality. Right. But you don't eliminate cartel behavior here in 2020, given our history. Like, what you're advocating for is time machine politics. If we could go back to 1910 and start over and have it be where none of this was ever illegal and cartels never got established, then maybe that's something to wonder about. The problem, though, is that even if you legalized, not decriminalized, legalized everything tomorrow, you've still got criminal organizations operating internationally and domestically that are going to continue to do what they do with the same tactics they have because you haven't eliminated by legalization their need in the marketplace. You're saying the cat's already out of the bag. 
Uh, very much so. You've, you've certainly weakened the cartel in the amount of money they may make, but, you know, as, as, as I'll get into a little bit later, because when we start talking about tax revenues and the legislative bodies and stuff like that, I mean, right. illegal drug activity, even for legalized drugs like marijuana, has not dried up. And far, far, far from it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when you're starting with something that is, uh, you know, that's why prohibition's so different. It was legal, and then made illegal, and then made legal again. Drugs are different. They've been illegal for this entire time. And so this, this element has, has thrived and will not go away with the legalization or decriminalization. Of course. But it doesn't erase the fact that making alcohol illegal via prohibition did invite a criminal element that wasn't there before and didn't, I guess the jury is out, on whether or not it actually uh, made people drink less. You know, people people were were still prone to drink. They were just going to do it illegally now. And, and that goes to a fundamental thing, I think, about the American conscious, maybe even just human beings in general, are rebellious. And when, you know, I think it's an interesting sort of conversation to have that when you make something illegal, does that make people want to sort of do it more because it's dangerous? It's interesting. You know? And before we go here, because I think this yeah. is a very interesting psycho- uh, psychological and, and human condition discussion. But getting back to your point about externalities, I, I just want to mention one thing. I think anecdotally speaking, as you said, a drug user may not be outwardly violent, but, right. you know. Who, it's just such a nuanced thing. They may get violent if they're laying somewhere they shouldn't be and get asked to leave, or they right. start a fire by accident because they nod off due to a heroin addiction and burn their house down, which starts a fire and burns the block down. Like right. I don't see how the argument is nearly as black and white as you made, as you made it out to be with the layers and the, and the people in the homes by themselves. People right. who are severely or not even severely addicted to drugs are not, they're not functioning members of society, and as such, they can cause significant damage to the people around them. That's the problem that you're outlying with externalities. Personal responsibility flies out the window when drugs enter the picture. So why aren't we asking for more personal responsibility from our citizenry? We're talking about a loss in national productivity. But think about how many people, think about how that same logic applies to alcohol. You could walk into any corner store and get a liquor bottle, right? And think about how many people die of drunk driving accidents, not to mention the physical toll, like you touched on, that alcohol does on the body. Think about how many people die of liver disease every single year from alcohol abuse. So why is, the the question is, what's the difference, Clay? I mean, do you... uh, what what would you have to say about what the difference is between generally between alcohol and drugs in in ter- in the context that we're talking? I'd have a, I'd have a couple of things to say, but and then but I, I even after that though I think it's important that we don't leave the topic of externalities because okay. we mm-hmm. we we haven't even touched on the biggest aspect of externalities in my view. Okay. But okay. No, the, the difference the difference between drug use and alcohol use is a couple of things. One fundamentally is that there are billions and billions of people in the world that drink alcohol that aren't addicted to alcohol. There are little to no casual heroin and meth users. That's always going to be a difference because there's always going to be a market, a good market, an economically sound and capitalist market for alcohol that are not going to produce any externalities at all. Whereas I, I just... I. Yeah, well, and I just don't think you all are going to tell me about your buddy from college who was a really good dude and got straight A's, and once every six months he liked to shoot up. I mean, that's just, right, it's just right. not the nature of the drug. Right. So that's, the, that's one important thing. But the other, maybe even more important, and this is just sort of cold hard economics, is that alcohol and alcohol sales power vast swaths of industry yep. because yeah. of how expensive it is and, I will say, as a good Irish boy, how awesome it is. I mean, it can be enjoyed casually. 
and it can be enjoyed by even people, you know, who drink too much and drink to inebriation, they're not necessarily addicted to it. And, and but I mean, like, I mean, y'all, y'all live in LA long enough, y'all know a ton of actors, people who've worked in the restaurant industry. Restaurants would not exist. They if make all their money. Sales. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. The margins on Fall food margin. are yeah. are sometimes negative. Yeah. Yeah. If you took all sit down restaurants and said you can't sell alcohol anymore, there would be no restaurants. There it's would why, be no nightclubs. It's why we've seen restaurants selling bottles of wine and bottles exactly. of cocktails and alcohol because so, so they can't the, exist. The, on, but at on the, the same world. time, yeah. tens of thousands of people die from alcohol every year, whether it's in, in via accidents or uh, you know uh, bodily harm to themselves. No, no one is saying that there's no negative effects to alcohol. You're asking what the difference is. There is not a single industry in this country that is propped up by heroin and cocaine use. No. Mm -mm. And the money that is generated by alcohol dwarfs, even just alcohol sales, dwarfs what would be the amount of revenue generated by heroin and by cocaine. Because these are people who either die from overdoses or ruin their lives and use all their money. These are not productive ways to use money and to contribute to GDP. Alcohol is a major net-net GDP driver because of the industries that it props up. And because you and I, you and I have never been to rehab. How much money have you contributed to America's GDP in the last 20 years with alcohol sales? I would argue there is more externalities created from alcohol than there is from from heroin, for instance, because we've all seen drunken brawls everywhere. Um, You know, people, uh, how many drunk people, uh, drunk men come home and beat their wives or, uh, you know, are sexual assaults that you hear that are involved with alcohol when it with heroin with a heroin addict you see them passed out on the street wouldn't you say that's so, less externalities i than- would not i would not and thank you for teeing me up because you're completely wrong about this <laughs> but i think what you're talking about uh, on a macro scale is national productivity i mean national productivity if people are on heroin goes down a massive great amount uh, a massive percentage and what clay was saying about alcohol is that they can't the same thing cannot be said for alcohol right but there aren't that many people compared Not, to people who drink alcohol casually there aren't again, that many people who do heroin well because you can't number one you can't do heroin casually and number two right. alcohol is legal and heroin is not which is exactly why I don't think we should make it legal. <laughs> right. So here, hold on. Let's wait, let me let me get this out on the externalities bit because Rob, really, I I appreciate the intro, but I just think your your conception of externalities coming from heroin and from other drugs is just incomplete. Okay. And you were framing this in terms of crime and effect on the immediate community in terms of what the drug user does or does not do as a result of being high, um, and that's a piece of it. Certainly, it's a piece of it. Um, I would note that it's not an insignificant number of people that commit violent crimes as a result of drug use. Uh, and y'all can look this up. 2017, there was a Bureau of Justice report that says 21% of sentenced people in state and local jails, just state and local jails, are locked up for crimes committed to obtain drugs or to obtain money for drugs. Almost That's almost 40% of people locked up for property crimes, 14% uh, of people incarcerated for violent crimes. Now, again, that's just state and local. If you do extrapolate that to the entire prison population, and this is for the years 2007 to 2009, that's 473,000 inmates. So it's not that it's half the prison population or something like that, but you're not talking about some rare occasion that a heroin addict breaks into somebody's house and stabs somebody when you know they're sealing their wallet or whatever it is. Like, or, by, or, or, by the way, when they're not on the drug looking for the drug, they could also be very, very dangerous. 
Yeah, maybe when they're on Certainly. heroin, they're passed out in, in their bathroom. But when they're looking for it and they're trying to find money, maybe they're robbing people. Maybe, you know, there's all kinds of things that create. Uh, yeah, the, yeah, but but what we need to have the, st- the st- statistics on that because I'm not entirely sure. From what I've read, uh, there, there is actually less incidence of, of that happening, of violent behavior from people who do heroin than there is from people who are drinking alcohol and are drunk and running around the... I mean, we see homeless people both drunk and high right and i think we could say they're equally dangerous in different ways sure all all i'm saying is that the idea that there's just no one in prison committing violent crimes because heroin addicts don't commit violent crimes i just i I don't think no i don't think the numbers i I just said support that yeah i wasn't saying the the thing about this though to consider even is that if you were to legalize drugs the numbers i just read off may very well go down because you don't have transaction related drug activity. You don't have problems with enforcers. You don't have people getting their fingers broken because they, they you know, the, didn't pay their debts or, you know, deals gone bad or something. Um, but we have to remember a couple of things in this. One, making something legal does not eliminate the illegal market. And we'll get to some numbers on that later. Um, the other problem, though, is that whether decriminalization or legalization, you do not solve the problem of people needing to fund a drug habit with money. Whether it's legal or not, there will be people desperate for drugs, and that will cause some measure of people to do bad things that may harm those around them. But really, this is all this is all kind of a sideshow because the the biggest externality we should be talking about here is that this goes to Justin's point. I thought I thought he put it very well. You're talking about national productivity going down. And our country currently has a horrific and ongoing experience with this, with the opioid-turned-black-tar-heroin crisis. Um, And there's just been... Y'all should read a book. Y'all read... Y'all listeners out there, too. Y'all need to read a book by a guy named San Quinones. It's called Dreamland. Y'all know this book, Dreamland? Yeah, it's So San Quinones is is mostly a a reporter who who reports on border issues. Uh, But he he wrote this very thick book uh, about... Uh, Purdue Pharmaceuticals and the introduction of Oxycontin and the rise of of opioids in the opioid crisis and how that fed into concurrently and developed with the black tar heroin trade running throughout this country and destroying a number of communities. Like, we're talking about just total devastation of entire towns in America as a result of drug addiction. So there's a couple of lessons from this. One, it's that devastation of communities can occur through legal means too, or at least by legal actors like a pharmaceutical company doing things out in the open. But the other the other problem is that you're thinking about externalities, I, I just think in too much of a narrow way. Like, you think about a guy addicted to heroin or coke, whatever it is. He uses all of his savings to fund his habit. He can't pay his mortgage anymore. Kids can't go to the nice school anymore. Dad can't work anymore. Mom's got to go to work. Kids are in poverty now, and who knows what the hell happens next. So the family is now leeching off the state, any people dad employed are now out of work. Or if dad is, as was the case in Portsmouth, Ohio, and any number of towns around there, if dad is one of many in a community who can't work anymore, then all the businesses go under and the town ceases to exist. So those are all externalities that are of drug use that are not captured by American progress or, or any other studies. You're talking about devastation of people, devastation of business, families, civic contributions. It's not just what happens at the moment that the person is looking for a fix. Right. And with that said, we have both, you and I, Clay, have both agreed that the war on drugs has been a failure based on the statistics we've, we've read. Has it then? 
in your opinion? Has the war on drugs been a failure? Yes, and why? Well, it's absolutely been a failure for, I think, the reasons that um, that you've indicated. For one, jailing people doesn't make them not addicted to drugs oftentimes. I'm sure there's programs that help some people, of course. But, I mean, it, it, by, by and large, um, and, you know, I mean, it's something, it's something crazy. Like, I think when they... Uh, the the increase the the link in increased mortality from overdose as a result of incarceration is is, is massive. It's like thirteen times the grade the the normal population or something. So we're not we're not helping anybody by putting them in jail. I mean, and and you know, state of New York, I think it was something like ten twelve years ago, basically just said like we're done. We're not we're not we're not jailing people for marijuana anymore. This is ridiculous. And um, I don't know how much of a positive effect that had on on communities, but I applauded the step at the time um the the issue comes rob just in response to your question of yeah we can we can understand that the war on drugs was a failure but also understand that in considering what we do about it in its place we can't just consider like oh we're not helping anybody by incarcerating them because they wouldn't be violent anyway there's so much more to it than that and as we consider any change in regime we cannot get comfortable with the libertarian mindset of well, hey, you know, if you do right by me, I'm okay. No, no, no. Like, rampant drug use of things like meth and heroin absolutely screws over all of us. It screws over all of us directly by our communities being destroyed and cutting off our access to things because businesses close, etc. And it screws all of us because these people become wards of the state and need treatment, and taxpayers end up paying for it. So we, we just we, we can't be blind to those externalities as we consider the right answer to this tough question add, added to that clay I, I i would i would uh give you the stat so state and federal prisoners participated in a survey conducted by bjs it was concluded that roughly half of the prisoners met the diagnostic not diagnostic and statistical manual for mental disorders the criteria for drug abuse right additionally fewer than 20 percent who needed treatment received it and only 14.8 percent of state and 17.4% of federal prisoners reported receiving addiction treatment after admittance. So yes, we're jailing these people and that doesn't do anything, but the ones that need the treatment aren't getting the treatment even in the prisons. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So maybe, maybe it is a solution to put these people away, but put them away and give them treatment which they're not getting. Just putting them away obviously is not doing anything. The treatment, the treatment issue becomes tricky. Yeah. So Dr. Nora D. Volko, the director of the National Institute on Drug Abuse, said in an interview in the Boston Globe recently, the greatest mortality from drugs comes from legal drugs. The moment you make a drug legal, you're going to increase the number of people who get exposed to it, and therefore you increase the negative consequences from its use. And Clay, you, you mentioned this earlier. When you, legalize, when you legalize, you create an industry whose purpose it is to make money selling those drugs. And how do you sell it? Mostly by enticing people to take them and entice them to take high quantities. I never heard that quote before. I think it's interesting. I'm sort of pulled in two different, seemingly different directions by that quote and by this concept. Because one thing, and there's a lot of research to back this up, American Progress has done a lot of it, is that in places like Portugal and others where they've decriminalized as opposed to legalized, you don't see significant uptick in usage. Um, That could be for a number of reasons, and we don't necessarily know that that would translate to our country. But while that sentiment in the quote expressed is one that intuitively I agree with, I don't know that there is a ton of research to back it up. But I almost think that's that that's kind of missing the forest for the trees in some ways, because, again, let's think about 
what we mean by legalization. You're literally talking about brick-and-mortar heroin shops at that point. People can do drugs as much as they like, maybe with time, place, and manner restrictions. But... Yeah, I mean, I think that's the ref- that's the reference there in this quote, and that that leads to the conversation on on libertarianism and that and that idea of legal uh, legalization. I think that that's what Doctor Volkow is talking about there. Um, what could happen if we make these things completely legal? And it's a little bit scary, even if you want to look at research that suggests to the contrary. I mean, I'll just put the question to you, Rob. And I'm not pigeonholing you as saying that you're a total libertarian on this, because I know you aren't. But I mean, I just ask you the question, like, whatever your views are and what the best policy is, you don't want your children walking past a cocaine dispensary on the way to the bus stop. No, but... but you don't. Uh, I just okay. know that you, you don't. You, here's <laughs> the thing. You, you, would, you would ask before <laughs> we even had this conversation when we were going over the topic of the day, what prostitution has with any of this. And one of the things I'm going to talk about when I do eventually get to the prostitution topic is the idea that we can we can include decriminalization with uh, regulation to a certain extent. So, for instance, we section off certain portions of the city, and we already see this with like the homeless for instance in LA and uh, there's basically legalized drug use in what we call Skid Row in Los Angeles uh, for those of you who who aren't living in LA you might not know that Skid Row is is an area of downtown LA that is well known for being where vagrants are allowed to basically live the way they want to live uh, uh they it's not so much Skid Row anymore guy look out your window it's not so much Skid Row but uh, yes yeah, but but in Skid Row it really is legal to do any kind of drugs you want i mean the the, the it's unpoliced it's unregulated according to the what, cop in your neighborhood so it, it's the same thing in your neighborhood <laughs> right it's similar that's for sure that's yeah that's a whole other topic of the day but what i'm saying is that we can include I, yeah, no i don't want to be stepping over crackheads when i'm taking my kids to the park but if we if we if we had regulation that prevented externalities from everyday life and you had portions of the city where you didn't bring your children where drugs were maybe not legal but decriminalized where you could do what you wanted to do in those areas and there weren't families in those areas that were being affected by those externalities then it's a different story does that make sense no i understand but again i I began my comments with the notion of you don't want legalization and i understand that and you're you're talking about decriminalization you're talking about something different so yes i understand i'm talking about just from a legalization standpoint i just don't think that's something that any serious person actually wants to have happen but is that a platform of the libertarian movement yeah oh absolutely it is Mm -hmm. oh yeah absolutely yeah yeah and and there's there's so many issues that come with this but the libertarian movement the libertarian movement believes also and i've read a lot about this that by legalize by making these things legal what you a big uh, one of the main byproducts of that is that you will actually cut down on addiction, cut down on the amount of people who are doing it. And from the studies I've read in Portugal, and I know decriminalization is different from legalization, drug use has gone down in the country of Portugal. Did you find that as well, Clay? I mean, well, firstly, you're talking about apples and oranges. It's not legalization. You just said it. So I mean, like, so it, it, and, and some, to some extent, it doesn't matter. Um, but the other problem uh, is that to the extent drug use has gone down, there's a lot more to the Portugal regime change than just what we're talking about here uh, in, ter- in terms of the decriminalization of drugs. Um, uh, and when they decriminalized use and possession of drugs, that was just one of scores, dozens of 
social reforms that they made at the time. And the experts on Portugal and even the architects of the program will tell you that you can't just look at the relative success of the program and say that it was decriminalization that did it. It was the whole package, including, I mean, they literally remade their entire social safety net. Like in Europe, you already have more of a welfare state than Americans are generally comfortable with, but they... They hugely expanded their welfare state. They instituted a guaranteed minimum minimum income. They uh, put in all of these social safety nets. Totally to, different system. Totally different system. So, right. And, and really, though, and this is this is really the issue, and this is why libertarianism is is in my view, it's as pure libertarianism is as fantastical as unicorns. Like they have this idea of, I want you to butt out of my life, I don't want you to do anything, government, until I need you, and then please come back. Like, pure libertarianism, if you define moral libertarianism as the view that no one has any right to force any individual to do anything with his body or property that goes against his will, that just doesn't work in a pack, in a tax-paying situation in which yeah, we all support they're each other playing in the degree. system anyway. You're playing in yeah, the system. It yeah, just doesn't work. Right. It's like we said, like, yeah. if, someone, if someone goes to the hospital with an overdose... Yeah. And they don't have insurance. The hospital eats money. The insurance right. company eats money. This the emergency life-saving treatment. It's the ambulance ride. It's everything. Yeah. Our premiums All of us go are up. paying for that. Yeah, right, so congratulations right. for you, libertarian, that you want people to bet out of your life, but you're f***ing into mine. So we, d- we just have to, we have to keep that in mind when we're talking about this idea that, oh, it's just pure freedom-based thing. It's like, no, yeah. it's just not the reality. No, there are certain libertarian concepts that resonate with me, and I think that is, that's fine. Um, you know, you have a lot of Republicans who say the same things. I mean, we have Republicans like Rand Paul who uh, who lean libertarian on a lot of these issues, um, and, and that's fine, but yes, the more, if you read just the, li- the classic libertarian charter, like, some of it is lunatic. I, I mean, absolutely. But the, uh, the, the takeaway I want from this conversation, and this is important for the rest of the conversation we're going to have, is that um, in Portugal and other places, it's not just decriminalization. It's not just decriminalization, not just because of the social safety nets that prop people up and make them disinclined from drug use anyway, but it's also a robust and extremely well-funded treatment regime that goes hand-in-hand with the absence of criminal penalties and that's going to be what really drives my issues with what Oregon's doing and with, I think, the prospect of implementing a change in America. I want to talk more about that, especially about treatment and if something like that could be pulled off here, something like they've done in Portugal. Uh, we're going to cut it here because we've given you guys a lot in this episode. Um, and we're going to come back to finish this topic of the day next week in part two of this debate. And uh, until then, have a good night. Don't do anything crazy. As we always say, we will see you next week for a brand new episode and we will continue this topic of the day. We hope you enjoyed. Have a good week. This has been another episode of Down the Middle, the fastest growing moderate political podcast in the nation. Go to downthemiddlepod.com to find out more info and contact us. If you send us questions, we'll answer them on air. Follow us on social media at Down the Middle Podcast on Instagram, at Down the Middle PC on Twitter, and at Down the Middle Pod on Facebook. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. Five stars, people. Five stars. All right. Good night for now. Yeah.